Assalamu alaikum. Okay, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I was saying that we had um, Mito's birthday present in the background. He's like this white, uh, like racist dude kind of thing, like a big man that you put on a stand and you punch him. Because, um, you know, Mito's 15 now and he likes to punch me, so I figured I should give him an alternative. And uh, I put him up in the background for just a little humor because I think everyone needs a little bit of pandemic humor, but my German Shepherd does not have a good sense of humor. So every single time he sees this guy, he just starts barking like crazy. So we can't actually have him in the same room wherever we are. <laughs> but um, anyway, so those of you who came early got a chance to see Bob. <laughs> so alhamdulillah, I just, uh, let me start by first saying um, a really heartfelt thank you to everyone who donated during Ramadan for the Launch Good campaign. So um, as I mentioned before, we had you know raised um, over $16,000, I think, when everything was said and done by the end of the month of May, which is incredible because the original target was something like 3,000 something. So, you know, we're so grateful and, um, you know, inshallah, I mean, we have um, a lot of, a lot, we'll talk more about other things coming up because I think if you've been following us and you know what we've been doing, we have a lot of really exciting projects and um, I think that um, hopefully, you know, we would really love if people could um, find it in their hearts to donate uh, monthly and help us kind of continue a lot of these projects um, and help us kind of, you know, share in that in that journey that, um, you know, requires investment. And I think that um, one of the really exciting things that we're going to do, we talked about this in the Q&A um, when the professor revealed some of the new research that he's doing um, on the Quran. And we talked about the possibility of having a new Quran halakha about the idea that every surah in the Quran has its own unique theme and unique message. And so the professor in two weeks from today is going to do that, the first halakha or, you know, do one halakha so we can see what he's talking about and understand the importance of the work. And then hopefully from there, once people see what it is, you know, if they believe in it and they recognize the value of it, then I hope people will get behind it and support it so we can do more. Because obviously it's a, a huge commitment. Um, to have to be teaching full-time and then doing this research on the side and trying to do halakas and weekly chutbahs and all of that. So, you know, we, we even though it's been pandemic mode, we've been really busy and alhamdulillah, you know, doing a lot of really good things, but it would be really wonderful to focus our attention on leaving this legacy behind. I mean, I think one of the really important things about this whole pandemic time is it changes the way you think about life and death and what legacy you want to leave behind. And I think that whereas before, um, when I was shy to ask people to kind of, you know, no one likes to be a fundraiser, no one likes to ask for money. Um, but now I really believe that so much of what you leave behind is really all that matters. And that I truly believe in my heart that anyone who supports this financially this all of us share in the blessing of this legacy and it's like an amazing idea that you could contribute to something that will continue to earn blessings for you long after you're gone and that can help shape the future of islam in america and help you know our children find their way so you know i um i find that this is not a, a you know an issue of shyness because it's not about me it's not about the professor it's about leaving behind knowledge that can really change things for the future of, of our world and for our kids so um, but more on that in the future. But do definitely mark your calendars. So two weeks from today, um, at the same time at 4 o'clock, we'll be doing 
um, our first uh, new Quran halakha. So that should be really interesting. Um, <clears throat> also, we are, are going to schedule another Q&A session for July because the Q&As were really amazing and popular. And I hope that you'll share those. Um, you know, we, we haven't had the time to cut them up by question, but so instead what we did is we put timestamps on them so people can very easily read what questions we covered and find where we started talking about it in the, you know, two, three hour plus, um, or actually I should say, yeah, so six hours plus of content, which nobody really wants to wade through. But I think that it was so valuable and so um, interesting and people, you know, found it, um, we got all kinds of, you know, messages from people that they found it so valuable. So I really want to encourage you guys to share it, um, you know, with anyone who you think would benefit. So, you know, I can't believe that, um, honestly, it's been a month, just barely a month since we met um, for the last um, Tafsir. And it's incredible because it feels like a long time ago, right? I mean, it's like the whole experience, I think, of time has changed. So the last time we got together, like we were a few days into Ramadan. So we had the whole month of Ramadan. We had all the activities. And it's like when I think back to where we were, it was like a different time in a different world, right? Because at that point, we were just dealing with the reality of the pandemic lockdown and the fact that everything was going online. And we were asking, you know, OK, mosques are closing. What do we do about Tarawiyah prayer? What do we do about virtual khutbahs? You know, and we were really like, or I was especially really engaged in like, okay, how many people are dying from the pandemic and how many people, you know, the numbers and all of that. And so fast forward to a month and here we are in a completely different world looking at protests. The professor was just telling me that the protests continue on. Um, you know, of course, everyone now has seen, um, you know, or has become aware of, you know, the, the police brutality, George Floyd, and all of the countless other people who have been killed. Um, and just, you know, the, I mean, everything, right? So it, it's like we've forgotten about the pandemic. You know, now it's like the pandemic has entered a new phase of like, are we really going to open up our country? You know, are we going to go back to normal? I mean, nothing has honestly changed. But um, now we're dealing with, you know, economic downturn. Um, threats to democracy, um, you know, the, the way people are um, dealing with the violence and police brutality on the streets. It's just, um, I think, shocking and, you know, very, I'm sure, emotional for everyone. Because I know for me, I have so many mixed emotions. And, you know, it's hard to um, also kind of follow just the overwhelming like avalanche of news that hits you every day. You know, everyone is talking about a different aspect of it. So, for example, if you're listening to mainstream media, you know, you're hearing a very sort of singular view that, you know, it's about looting and it's about violence, you know. But if you dig a little deeper, then, of course, you know, you listen to some of the independent news channels, you hear a lot more nuance and a lot more layering. You know, people are talking about looting as a good thing, as, you know, sort of a thing that is a response to the rich. But then you, you find that people are reporting most of the people that are looting are like white teenagers that have no interest in politics and... They're just taking advantage of the moment to break and you know break in a store and grab some free shoes. Um, you know you're you're hearing about um, store owners, both rich and poor, that are getting brutalized. You know black owners who are calling the police for help but getting brutalized in the process. Um, and then it's heartbreaking to see just so many peaceful protesters, many of whom are so young and you know that 
are confronting a very uncertain future. You know, like if they've graduated from college, they have no prospects for a job. Um, and, you know, they're standing there with their arms up yelling, don't shoot, don't shoot. Or they're, you know, getting boxed in by police and saying, you know, let us go home or let us leave. And I think these things are just so heartbreaking. Um, and it's, you know, so one of the things that I know that I struggle with, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm not a person of color. I'm not a black person. I don't know what it's like um, to, to, you know, be a black person in America. And so, you know, clearly, you know, racism is at the forefront of everyone's conversations. And, you know, here in the Muslim community, of course, you know, we have our own issues with racism that we need to confront. So I guess in some ways, it's sort of good that, you know, a lot of this stuff is now coming to the surface. And the question is, how are we going to deal with some of those things? Um, I know that, um, you know, one of the things that I've been struggling with is just even the idea of my own privilege, right? So I haven't to this day really fully watched the George Floyd video. I couldn't handle seeing him killed. I saw stills of it, so I know what it looked like for that killer to have his knee on him. But, you know, I feel guilty about that because this is not my reality and I can choose to turn away. But there are so many people in the world that are suffering that can't turn away because that is, that's where they live. So, you know, clearly, um, as a news junkie, by nature, um, I've, you know, had to, for, for survival purposes, stop being so much of a news junkie, right? So it's like I was literally, as I said, you know, in the last Holocaust, I was watching so much stuff, you know, about the pandemic. It was getting to be too much. But then now the pandemic, the presidential election, the, um, you know, economic collapse, the decisions that our government is making, it's like, okay, you know, it's too much, but at the same time, as to be an engaged Muslim, we have to, we still have to stay connected. So, you know, clearly, I think the answer is to become more discerning and to be, you know, careful that you're not just, you know, exploding all of your energy on, on stuff that is just not necessarily important. And I think that, so I wanted to share at least some of the sources that I have found really valuable because I think that, you know, when you're like, the vast majority of people are watching like MSNBC and you know that that's the station that toes the Democratic line, you know, or on the other side, you're listening to Fox News, you know, there's the Republican line. Um, and the vast majority of what people are hearing is very, you know, partisan. So I thought that I would share a show that I have found extremely valuable. It's called Rising on Hill TV, which is a, on, the, on a YouTube channel. And what's interesting about that because I'm sort of, you know, I'm in search of truth tellers, right? So, you know, we, I feel like we're sort of in the business of, of truth telling and saying things that most people don't like to hear and that, you know, would um, be very controversial, but that I think in our time is especially necessary. So, for example, if you, so following politics, um, this show Rising has two commentators. One is Crystal Ball. She's a Democrat. And the, the man is a Republican. His name is Sagar Njeti. And both of them come from the world of media, so and also from Washington. So they know, you know, very deeply what goes on behind the scenes in Washington and how it works, and you know how news is spread and how people get talking points every day and say, okay, here's what you have to say, and you hear those talking points repeated on all, you know, the, the various channels, and they are able to actually, you know, present um, sort of the a balanced view from a truth-telling perspective. I mean, they're both populists. And they both have their own, you know, um, 
perspectives, Democrat, Republican, but they're more interested in truth telling. And they bring a lot of really smart people on the show to kind of help you get, you know, beyond sort of the talking points. So um, they were actually, um, interestingly, on another person's show la this past week. Um, I don't know if people are, know Joe Rogan. Um, he's like got the number one podcast in America. And it's very interesting. So Joe Rogan is kind of this Hollywood figure. He was like on the show Fear Factor. Um, and he's kind of like, um, you know, the he kind of speaks for like everyday America, right? And it's it's sort of refreshingly honest and surprisingly, you know, he's kind of a MMA guy, you know, like um, mixed martial arts. So he's like this big dude and he's like bald and he like swears a lot, you know. But the thing about him is he's created this space where for truth telling, where people are just very honest and, and he has grown his audience you know, tremendously. And um, it was a big deal when he, um, you know, endorsed Bernie Sanders. People were like up in arms. It's like, this guy is like, you know, looks like, you know, a, a meathead or something, you know. But he's a really smart guy. And um, he actually had both Crystal Ball and uh, Sagar and Jetty on his show last, this past week. And it's like a three hour long conversation, but it was fascinating because they really dug down into the layers that people don't normally hear about our political system. They were talking about, you know, different issues related to the protests and all that. So I just really encourage people to kind of um, look for alternate means um, of, of getting their news. And, you know, and I think it's, it's a surprising um, it's a surprising thing when you find truth tellers across a lot of different spectrums. So here in this one show, you had kind of middle America and Democrat and Republican, but they came together on humanist, you know, um, populist, reality-based issues. So it's really worth listening to. Um, and then other, other sources of information that I trust um, are um, The Intercept, which is um, some of their, their rock stars are Glenn Greenewalt and Mehdi Hassan, who speak, who's a Muslim, actually, and was on Al Jazeera, but he's an incredible journalist. Um, Ryan Grimm, Naomi Klein. You know, they're just anyone associated with The Intercept is amazing. They're really dedicated to digging out the truth. Um, and then also Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman has always been incredible. Um, and then I also like a podcast by the documentary filmmaker, Michael Moore. And, you know, he's al always been a truth teller through his documentaries and recently came out um, with a new documentary called The Planet of the Human, um, which was very interesting. It came out um, in celebration of the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And it's a, um, it's a documentary about environmental activism and the failures of environmental activism and the whole climate change issue. And what was striking about it is because of the pandemic, they released it for free on YouTube so that, you know, it turned out that like 8.3 million people watched it. But it was so like upsetting to the corporate, uh, the corporate world that they were able to cobble together some kind of lawsuit where they were able to force um, YouTube to go black. So they banned it. And for 12 days, it was banned. And it just came back online now. So it had, you know, they found some, some issue with copyright or whatever. But clearly, you know, it's truth telling. They obviously hit a nerve and it obviously became a very big issue for people to quash it. So you should definitely watch it <laughs> just for that. So, you know, it's just, just to emphasize, you know, we, we live in a time where trust is so 
I, it's just not here. And people, I mean, trust is a really important measure of our personal security, right? If you don't have something to trust, it undermines everything about your world. And so, you know, from a sort of non-Muslim perspective, some of these sources are really important for just staying, you know, abreast with what's happening in the real world. And, you know, it's like you, there was so much conflicting information, so much um, bipartisanship, um, so much politicking, it really is difficult to know who to trust. So, you know, during Ramadan, the month of Ramadan, it was such a nice break to kind of say, okay, you know, I'm going to take this time to sort of literally turn inward to, to home, right? So I, a lot of people know that I shared um, chapters of The Search for Beauty, the book by the professor. And, you know, it's it was an amazing, like, experience. I just wanted to talk about it again because now that we've sort of come out of Ramadan and we, you know, sort of feel like, um, you know, the, the blessings and the sort of ethereal spiritual lift that you get during that month, you, you feel like palpably like it's, it's gone, you know, it's not Ramadan anymore. Um, but some of what was really special during that month was waking up every day and going, okay, what is the chapter that I am going to engage? And as I mentioned, you know, I would like say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim and say Al-Fatiha and then randomly, you know, open to something and ask God really to choose the right chapter. And so last time when we talked, I had just started a few days into that process. But when, when we finished the process and I went back and I looked at, you know, out of a book of 85 chapters, which 30 chapters were chosen? And I, you know, some people say, oh, it's just a random whatever. No, I believe that when you pray and you ask God to help you choose, you know, a chapter for a reason, that God answers your prayers. And I, when I look at the chapters that were revealed, it's truly like a divine curriculum that you know, even though this book was written over two decades ago, it's like every single chapter addressed something very important that we as Muslims should really think about and reflect on and understand and learn about. Um, you know, and and so, you know, the thing that that was the most striking to me um, was the last chapter that was revealed, kind of at the end of the journey. You know, it was like, okay, we've gone through all of these different chapters, we've seen all different sort of aspects of our world and what it's like to live as a Muslim. Um, where do we end this journey? And I was surprised that the, the chapter we ended on was called The Scholar's Road, and it was a tribute to scholars. And now this book was written really as, um, you know, a testament to the fact that we as Muslims today are completely disconnected from our Islamic intellectual tradition. Like we don't even know like who the key players of, you know, who are the scholars that, you know, meant anything. I mean, unless you are an Islamic studies student, you know, you really have no occasion to even know who the big names in our tradition are. And so this book, you know, argues that we've forgotten the, the, the tradition, we've forgotten knowledge, we've forgotten, you know, the role of books. And this chapter, to me, underscored the, the point about the fact that part of losing that is losing the connection to our scholars, and even our scholars today. Because, um, you know, I was, I was reflecting a lot about this, just the process of like, you know, when you read a chapter that really touches your heart and touches your intellect and strikes something in your intuition, every time you read something like that, you are rebuilding your trust with God and rebuilding your trust in your faith. And so to do that for 30 days in a row was extremely empowering and especially in this time of incredible destabilization and unrest, it was incredible to have that anchor that could pull you back and say, okay, I understand the world is going you know, crazy, but I can find my strength here. 
And I think when you think about the reverse of that, every time you hear something that is ugly or that doesn't sit well with your heart or is counter to your intuitive sense, you lose faith and you lose faith in God, right? Ultimately, that's the point. You lose faith in, in, in your, your religion and it shakes everything about you. And so I, I was reflecting on this and, you know, I think that, um, you know, we lose so much when, I mean, trust now is just that much more important. Um, I think that people, honestly, you know, Muslims, even though they quote unquote revere scholars or say that they revere scholars or the, even the word scholar holds a certain um, supposed importance, I actually believe that people have completely lost trust in our modern day scholars. And it comes out in a lot of different ways that I've noticed. So, sorry, my, my dogs see, they, they believe this point. They're like emphasizing, yes, exactly. Um, so, you know, when I'm on Facebook and I, and I get frustrated with the comments that people make, like, you know, this happens a lot with, with the professor, you know, even, where it's like, what school of thought does he follow? You know, and what gives him his credentials? And you know when I think about that, okay, if I answer, well, you know what, he's a Shafi'i. He's a Maliki, he's a Hanbali. If I answer your question, does that actually make you understand anything? Does that actually give him any you know, higher level of status? I, I think the question is, is an expression of frustration because I think that people have heard so much garbage from their scholars that they just don't trust them anymore, but they can't come out and say that. So it comes out in sort of passive aggressive ways. And, you know, even like when I'm trying to share like someone, you know, you see all over the Internet, people have questions about all kinds of things. And when I try to introduce like a link or an article or, you know, something that the professor addressed, I mean, we all here know that, you know, the answers that we hear here are very satisfying and very unique and very different from what you hear in, in mainstream, you know, Muslim, you know, in the mainstream Muslim world. And so when you introduce those things to try and help people and you get a very negative and um, you know, hostile response, to me, I read that as that's, that's the trust that has been lost with scholars to the point that you know, even if you don't say I don't trust scholars anymore, you really just ultimately don't. Um, and I don't blame them because you know, in our time, there are so many scholars that are silent in, in the face of injustice or they say things that are ugly or they say things that don't sit with your heart or you know, sit with your intuition. And what are you supposed to do with those emotions? Um, so you know, what does it mean when we've lost our connection to our scholars, especially when God tells us that scholars you know, inherit the earth after the prophets are gone, right? So that leaves us in a really, really bad place. So you know, what is, what is the point of me raising this? I mean, I think that, you know, coming back to, first of all, the, the 30th chapter that I shared called The Scholar's Road, I can't do it justice. I can't tell you how incredible it is. All I can say is please read it because it introduces us to a lot of scholars, but it introduces us to sort of these rock star scholars in our history. And the one scholar in particular that the chapter focuses on is Ibn Akhil. And you kind of track through what happened to him in his life and you're, you're amazed by 
how much suffering someone will go through to uphold the trust of the word with God. And that's just something that you just don't see in this day and age. And so it, it was an eye opener for me because on paper, it's like, this is what a scholar should be. This is what a scholar goes through as part of their, their seasoning and their training and you know what, what leads to wisdom and tests their commitment. And you know this is what we have forgotten and what we should expect of our scholars. What happens is when you don't trust your scholars, the other thing that I've noticed on Facebook is a lot of sort of people that step in as scholars, right? So now there are a lot of Facebook pages that have been created or communities where someone who is non-threatening, someone who is your friend, someone who's a graduate student is moderating that page and effectively now takes the space of the scholar. Because now you, if you don't trust a scholar, you can trust your friend. But what happens then to the quality of the scholarship? You know, you can start and you can say, you know, okay, I created this Facebook page for people to come and it's, you know, it's a non-judgment space. It's a safe space to ask questions um, that, you know, you might have or don't feel like you can't ask anywhere else. But what happens is when you open the door to those questions, you start getting really important, serious questions and questions that have been dropped elsewhere, right, by other scholars. So you've effectively now put your friend in the position of the scholar. And, and that's unfair to, that, to your friend, you know? And so, but it, it lowers the level of everything. So, what, and then what happens then to the scholars that maybe are worthy of your trust, right? That maybe aren't the rock star scholars that you see on Facebook every day or find on Instagram, but they're the ones that are busy doing the real work of scholarship. And they're maybe publishing books or doing something like that. And obviously for me, you know, I have followed the, the professor in my, you know, for the last, my, virtually my entire time as a convert. I've read virtually everything he's written since we've met. And, you know, so I know the quality of what's here. And so I get frustrated when I see, you know, so many people that have lost trust and are not, um, and understandably, understandably, are not open to now reading, you know, and doing the hard work of learning from a true scholar. So I think it's something that, you know, we, we really need to reflect upon. And, you know, so just, you know, a couple of telltale signs that I'll share with you, which I, I thought were interesting to me that happened over Ramadan. So here you'll notice, I, I just wanted to point out, you know, here during the khutbahs, if you follow our khutbahs, I've noticed that several people have made the comment, when you watch this incredible khutbah by Professor Abul Fadl, I would recommend that you watch it in one and a half speed, you know, because he very deliberately speaks slowly. And I think sometimes that's taken as, you know, I mean, there are people that will say, well, okay, we know the professor was really ill. And if you compare, like, maybe some of the halakas he gave 20 years ago, he spoke much faster than, you know, in the khutbahs. He's, you know, very deliberate with the words he chooses. Um, it's not from illness. It's from the weight of the word and upholding the trust. And what I put forth as evidence of that is if you even just watch, like last week, the professor gave a lecture online through um, the, it was the SIGA, Center for Islam and Global Affairs, through Istanbul. He gave a talk on U.S. and the um, challenge of democracy in Muslim world, in the Muslim world. It's a completely different tempo, completely different vibe, completely different thing. He's talking about his scholarship. He's talking about what's happening in the Middle East, you know, and it, it was like a, a very different engagement because he was speaking for himself, 
you know, he was speaking, sharing his ideas about his scholarship. He was not speaking and trying to convey the weight of God's word and what the Quran is trying to teach us as Muslims. So, you know, when he takes his time to choose the words, it's because he knows that he is going to be held accountable if he doesn't handle or, or present this in a way that's worthy of what he's teaching you. Now, you know, I compare that to what I found, you know, with other scholars, other, or not, I wouldn't want to say scholars, other people in the mosque that give khutbahs, right? I mean, back when we were open, or even now if you watch khutbahs that are delivered on online, there is not that same level of care because there is not that same level of awareness because the people that are speaking are not scholars. So, you know, these are all things that we need to think about. Another telltale sign, so um, humility. I was on Facebook and I was shocked to find that someone who's known as a famous imam um, somewhere in the UK was posting pictures of his new BMW that he had just bought. And he was making the point about how because he travels to so many places, um, he really needs a reliable car. And he showed a picture of the car he had before, which was beautiful. And he had it for seven years. But he made the point of saying, you know, the prophet in his time had so many wonderful camels. They were like incredible, high quality camels. And this was a justification for him buying a BMW and posting it online. And you know, and everyone was like, oh, mashallah, brother, congratulations, blah, blah, blah. And I was like shocked and ashamed. And I thought, really? Are we really posting pictures of our BMW, you know, in a time of a pandemic and economic downturn and all of this? And you were using the prophet and his camels as justification? I mean, come on, really? And, you know, if the prophet were to buy a car, like, I mean, you know, stuff for love, he lived in our day, I would imagine him buying, like, you know, an electric powered car, maybe like a Prius or a Honda, something small. And I'm sure he would not post on Facebook about it. You know, and so it's just like that, that point of humility. I, I don't know, I just, you know, it was just something that was so jarring to me. And then the issue of sort of honesty, right? Truth-telling and beauty and, you know, depth of knowledge. It's like when I listen to a scholar, you know, and I, and I trust the scholar, why is that? Is it, you know, it's because that person is saying something to me that is relevant to my life and that helps me navigate, you know, the world and help me figure out how to be a, a good Muslim, a better Muslim, a better person. And, um, you know, to me, like, when I see so many people, you know, express their frustration or pose questions, you know, like, oh, I heard that if you have, you know, I mean, I can't even think, I, like, I think I literally block them out of my mind because I see them on Facebook, all kinds of ridiculous questions because they've heard that from other scholars, you know, and they're looking for someone to just come out and say, no, this is stupid and it's wrong and it's ugly. And people don't do that. They can't, they feel they can't do that unless they have a scholar that they can say, they can refer to from, you know, whatever school and shik, such and such, whatever. So, you know, to bring it back, I mean, like when we live in times like this, you know, I, I want to call out yesterday's khutbah as an example of, you know, the power of a real scholar. And again, this is not, you know, I used to be also really shy to say anything good about my husband. I'm sorry that I'm sure I'm embarrassing him. But it's like, you know, it doesn't really matter what I think. What matters is the quality of the scholarship. And people here are here because they believe in what they hear and they know, you know, they understand what we do here. But it's like, you know, when I, before yesterday's khutbah, I was swimming in confusion, swimming in angst and like, 
you know, unhappiness and sadness and just not really sure what to make of everything going on in the world. And I felt like yesterday's chutbah helped me just realign everything. It's like it put everything in perspective. You know, like the, the chutbah cover, you know, the professor talked about, you know, the rise of Islamophobia, the rise of, you know, white privilege, the rise, you know, racism, the roots of racism. You know, this is something that happened, you know, before 9-11 and with 9-11, it took off. And, you know, you understand sort of the, the larger context of why we live in the world we live in today and why being white has, you know, the power that it has and why we live now in a time where, you, you know, you no longer have to be apologetic about being white, where, which wasn't the case before. You know, and he talked about the militarization of the police and what that means for the threats to our democracy. And, you know, and then he talked about, well, as Muslims, should we protest? Because, you know, you're hearing a lot of people out there saying, oh, it's haram to protest. No, you shouldn't protest. You know, should we protest peacefully? Should we protest, you know, should we do it forcefully? You know, and so to be able to hear literally in one khutbah, you know, everything that would make you realign and understand so much only a true scholar can really do that. And there are so few out there. So all of this to my point being that, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of what we do and I recognize that it's, it's very rare. And, you know, we, you know, we can read about scholars in, in previous times, but we need scholars for the here and now with the issues that we're dealing with, with the struggles that we're dealing with. And, you know, and I, and I get a little bit frustrated when people try to, you know, the, the, the Facebook groups that, you know, are, should be just discussion groups and not like, you know, friends teaching other friends. Um, you know, when we have a scholar in our midst that has a track record um, that, you know, gives us so much in terms of liberation, I believe that we need to embrace that and we need to support it. We need to get behind it. We need to amplify it. You know, it's our job as Muslims to reach out to other Muslims who have lost trust in scholars and lost trust in God and lost trust in our faith to say, hey, you got to check this out because it's not lost. And I think that it's part of our duty to to highlight these efforts and and, you know, and elevate them. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm really, you know, just to close, I. Um, I'm so happy that it feels like we're growing a very beautiful global community. I mean, we started out, you know, very small and I feel like people are starting to hear, you know, more about what we're doing. And I think the pandemic certainly helped that because, you know, people are online and they're searching, you know, and so more people have come across our work. Um, but uh, sorry, to my point earlier, I, I get frustrated when it's like people, um, I think people have even forgotten, like, you know, how to deal with with like finding a scholar they like it's almost like okay you find a scholar you like but because you've been burned so many times maybe you should find a few other scholars just in case but as a lay person honestly you know as a convert coming into this religion not knowing anything i was really fortunate to sort of find the professor you know find his work it struck my my heart, my intellect, you know, my 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 intuition, and I was like, "This is it. This is for me." I, I, you know, I didn't have the issue of trust with scholars because it was new to me. So it's like, okay, I believe in this scholar. I trust this scholar. I don't really want to be scholar hopping, and this is for me. I'm not saying this for everyone else, but it's work. It worked for me because it was a source. You know, I didn't know enough. I couldn't navigate between different scholars. I couldn't contrast and compare. 
What I did know is I trusted this particular scholar. I liked the way the scholarship read and sounded, and I wanted more. And so I started there. And now when I talk to people, you know, new converts, I say, listen, you need a foundation because you don't have the tools to be able to distinguish or discern between what sort of good knowledge and, not, and bad knowledge. So if you find someone you trust, read everything that they've written. You know, arm yourself with that. You don't have, it doesn't mean you have to follow them like you're a cult, you know, part of a cult. It means that you're, you're, you're creating a foundation in trust. And then from there, you have something to build on. You have something to, you know, weigh other scholars with. And it's a, it's a smart, logical strategy. So, you know, I, I hope and I, I have found that a lot of our, you know, global community members have done that. And I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, I see like we have an Asuli Institute community on Facebook. And, you know, for the most part, everyone is very polite and kind and, you know, and they're, they're you know, engaged. And, you know, that's really lovely because I don't see that in a lot of other Facebook pages. Um, and but I feel like people are still not trusting enough to say, okay, you know what, I want to commit to just reading everything that this professor has written or listening to everything. And I, I want to just encourage people. I think that it's, it's, a, it's, a, sen it's a source of strength. I mean, I, I have, like I said, I've read everything. I've posted everything on the website. You know, I know like what this content is and I know the quality of it. And, f you know, I want to see our community grow. I want to see our community strengthen. I mean, I want not just in numbers, but I want... Our, the individuals in our community to know the professor's thought. I want them to master this thought and not be afraid to say, you know what, I like and trust this particular scholar, and until I feel comfortable that I've mastered this one, I'm not moving on to anyone else because I, I trust him. If you read it and you don't trust it, fine, of course, you know, you don't have to stay. But um, so that's my advice, I guess, for, for this time. And, you know, we know, I mean, I've said this many times before, it's like the only constants in this life are change and God, right? And we know that change is going haywire right now. So when all you have that is the other constant is God, it just underscores that much more, you know, how important it is to strengthen that anchor you have with God and, you know, and build that trust by reading things that, elevate your trust, things that are loving and beautiful and reasonable, because to do the opposite, you're going to just lose trust and move further away from God. So um, so those are just some of the, shot, the thoughts that I wanted to share for whatever it's worth, because I feel like everybody is, you know, everyone is kind of navigating this, you know, unsettled future. And, you know, if you have a good anchor in God, then it makes life so much easier. And, you know, it, it helps you find the peace that you need. And just to end, I guess, on um, some good news. Um, it, and well, it's sort of like a part of our global community. So everyone, I think, by now knows that we had a nice conversation with Rami Youssef, the comedian. And I wanted to just say he just dropped his second season. And we watched all of it. And it was great. It was amazing. And, um, and people actually watched it and wrote in saying, it was really nice to see the professor's impact. <laughs> on some of the episodes um, because, you know, one of the writers, um, Adil of the show, you know, would come to our halakha a lot and, you know, and Rami came to our halakha um, also. And it was really lovely to see in one of the episodes a dog featured prominently as 
someone who the sheikh gave to Rami to help teach him to be a better human being. And so I think that was definitely had a little bit of our signature on it. Um, and then, you know, some and then um, they showed a prayer space with, you know, men and women praying side by side, which we do at the halakas um, and some other things that were more, you know, like um, intellectual. But so I hope I mean, maybe I'm imagining it, but I hope that we had some positive influence in that. And I, and I really encourage people to watch it because, you know, even if there are a lot of really difficult topics that are taboo, I think that there's so much um, beauty in addressing those topics head on and learning to, to you know, talk about how do we deal with these issues because they're real issues and you know Islam you know is about engaging the ideas and critical thinking and that's what we're we're here about so that's it um, so thank you so much and um, excited to turn it over So, inshallah, we'll uh, be returning to Surah Al-Fajr. Um, but, um, I just wanted uh, the... Um, if anyone is, is wondering the difference between this this these series or this series of tafsir and the experimental tafsir that inshallah will do in two weeks, um, they, they're very different things. Um, this tafsir series is the more traditional, classical style of tafsir where you take each surah, you take all the reports about that have to do with Asbab al-Nuzul, the occasion for revelation. You take commentaries on each ayah. And the everything that's been said about each ayah, um, from a linguistic perspective, from a historical perspective, from a theological perspective, and so on and so forth, and you and this is the way the traditional tafsir has always been done. It's ayah per ayah per ayah, and and a surah is seen as a cluster of ayahs, um, which have a number of themes. Each surah has a number of themes and a range of themes within it that it co it covers. Um, one after the other until you get to the end of the surah. Um, now, th there's been a question that I've wrestled with for a very long time, um, even 
even at a time when I was in no position to answer any of these questions, meaning when, when I was very young, I, I don't really remember when I started wondering about this, but the question was and is, what is the function of each surah? If surahs are clusters of ayahs, are different surahs in the Quran redundant? Do they basically convey the same message over and over and over again? But, you know, they, they will make the point that life is a test and that uh, if you don't do well in your test you go to hellfire and if you do well you go to jannah you know is that point made just repeatedly in a number of surahs in a largely redundant way and that for me has been um, a troubling question I mean if if you take something, um, if we if we take a surah out of the Quran, and we, you know, if we take let's say Surah Al Ankabut, or we take Surah Al Nahl. Does the coherence of the Quran lose anything if we simply delete a surah? So that's how the inquiry began. And I wanted to understand why each surah in the Quran, why each particular surah as a unity, not as a cluster of ayahs, but as a unity, um, why is it there? The other thing is that you know you, you, when you study this material long enough, you realize that the the earlier recipients of the Quran, the first Arabs who uh, listened to the Quran, had an ability to interact and understand it in a way that is largely lost to us. They, they, the Quran spoke to them in, in a style and in themes and in images and in metaphors that was much closer to who they are as human beings, as epistemological human beings, as, as a, a, a people ingrained within a certain um, set of experiences in, the, in their culture. And that part of the very early interactions with the Quran, what we notice that the commentaries on the Quran get longer as more centuries pass, as people's first experiences with the Quran um, get more remote, their commentaries get longer. 
the very first commentaries on the Quran were very short. Uh, Tafsir Muqatil, for instance, I mean, it's, it, uh, often it was just one volume or two volumes, and it was clear that they were relying on a certain memory, collective memory that they had of this text, that they would often reference in very succinct uh, fashion. A part of that historical memory that was lost is the, 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 the way that they named the different surahs. You know, we all are told that, well, you know, Surah Al-Ankabut is called Al-Ankabut because the word Ankabut is mentioned there. But th that's not uh, really a sufficient answer. When, when you look into it, you, you discover that, no, each surah could have had a very different name, um, that there were enough words unique or atypical words referenced in the surah. So what I'm saying is, is that the early Muslims, when they named surahs, they're often named surahs because of a thematic relationship. They understood something about the purpose of the surah that um, eludes us. So anyway, all of this led to years of reading each surah and, and trying to imagine what role, what psychological, theological, philosophical, um, emotive role each surah played when it was revealed. Why do we have that chapter as a chapter uh, so I don't, I don't do a tafsir that deals with every ayah in every surah. Rather, I do a tafsir that tries to figure out the collective purpose of the surah. And, of course, to do that for each surah, and to do it, and to do it, in a, to do it justice, um, you know, you're talking about even if we take, even if we exclude the shorter surahs, uh, which have a, a different uh, pedagogical role than the longer surahs. Uh, so you know, you you talk about at least ninety surahs, and if you do two hours on each of the 90 surahs and you do one surah a week, you do the math. You know, then it would, it would need a substantial time, period of time to actually just transmit that discourse or transmit. Um, so what we thought about is that the, doing a sample halakha where I just demonstrate what, is the, what I am talking about. It's very hard for people to, I think, understand unless you give them an example. So I, and I, I'm not even sure at this point which surah I'm going to pick because I've, uh, you know, I don't want to start with al-Baqarah because al-Baqarah, 
would need more than, than a single halaqa uh, to really discuss the role of al-Baqarah. And I don't want to do Ali Amran because the same applies to Ali Imran. And I don't want to do Nisa because the same applies to Nisa. So th then you have to take a shorter surah and you have to take a shorter surah and you have to show the thematic role that shorter surah plays. Why it, that surah was play, was revealed and, and what role that particular surah plays in the collective message of the Quran and and hopefully by the time you get done with the entire thing, people will understand why each surah plays a unique role. And that investing in studying the collective message of the Quran is extremely worthwhile. That, that in fact, this incremental segmented way of studying the Quran as, a, as ayah by ayah by ayah, um, denies us a lot. I mean, we miss a great deal when, when, when we do that. Uh, so anyway, that, that, that's the purpose, and we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure where, where we'll go from there. I don't want to cancel these series of halakas uh, just because they, 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 they preserve an important knowledge, and that's the classical tradition on tafsir. Um, and adding a new series of tafsir, it, it would be just a lot, uh, unless, unless there's some relief from teaching, uh, so that I wouldn't have to teach maybe for a year or, or something so that I can, um, okay, is that clear? Is that clear? So where where we left off al-fajr al-layl al-ash al-shafi al-watr did we get to al-layl iza yasr Shafa and Witcher was the last thing we talked about. Oh, okay. So we didn't get to the ladies. Okay. So you you recall then that we we went through the all the interesting discussions about what Shafa and what um, uh, refer to. And in, in my humble opinion, uh, Al-Wutr is a reference to Allah. 
as the singular, the one and only. And, and, and that's one of the views, but that's the opinion that I adhere to. And that uh, Shafa is anything that has an equal, anything that can exist in a duality. And the only thing that cannot exist in a duality is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as the one and only, the singular. So, and then uh, the, you remember that the surah starts like all the short, the, the earliest revelations. And everyone will remember that nearly every, all the authorities said that Surah Al-Fajr is a Meccan surah. It was among the early surahs in Mecca, uh, except for, I believe it was Ali ibn, Talha, ibn Abi Talha who said, no, it was revealed in Medina. But the, when we have a singular report like that, um, so we can comfortably say that Surah Al-Fajr is among the earlier revelations. And anyway, stylistically, it, it follows the pattern of the very early revelations of the Quran, where Allah is building the iman of the, the 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 structure of iman in a human being the, the that muslim person that human being who uh is going to bring allah's message to the world and in fact is going to become responsible for establishing an, an entire new civilization and bringing back the the purity of uh, the message of Ibrahim salam because remember that in Islam there is an early monotheism and it's the monotheism of all the prophets from Adam onwards and that Judaism has tribalized the monotheism so Judaism became a theology for Israelites, a race, and a, tri and, and a tribal lineage, if, if you will. Um, the co-optation of monotheism to an ethnic reality and the grafting of monotheism to an ethnic reality, while Christianity uh, had diluted monotheism itself. Christianity, the very idea of what and a shafa. Well, in Christianity, at, at a minimum, at a minimum, there is a duality in in the the, the father and the son. Um, you know whether that duality, as a lot of early Christianity was, in fact, not a trinity but a, a duality. Um, anyway, so the the corruption of the of the purity of the monotheistic ideas. And that the early revelations of the Quran bring back that pristine monotheism, a monotheism that is not intended for a tribe, it's not intended for a, an ethnic group, and it's not intended for a linguistic group, and it, and it is intended universally, and the, the insistence that this is the same monotheism that God has always given to human beings and that human beings have always drifted away from. Because human beings always drift back to nationalism, to, to classism, to 
uh, ethnocentrism to, to some type of uh, identity group and identity politics other than the oneness of Allah. The, the the nature of human beings, and as we will see, like all the early Meccan surahs, uh, Allah is is reminding us of the follies of there's the folly of thinking that you can exist agnostically. That whenever you say, "Well, I don't have an identity," you're lying, um, and we'll we'll see that. That in fact, you, the void will be filled. If there is a void, it will be filled. And it could be filled by God or it could be filled by shaitan. But it will be filled. No void remains empty. The, the nature of Allah's um, namus, Allah's laws in existence, is that you will fill it with something. Whether whether it's you know your the way you identify yourself with a with a group of friends or with a a cause or with possessions or with you know aspirations, the void will always be filled. The difference is is whether in self reflection you can understand that the only beautiful thing, the only appropriate thing, the only straight path things is to build your identity around the reality of your return to your maker. But as the, as the early surahs remind us, and the later surahs remind us in a different way, but still remind us of the same thing, is that in fact most human beings will fail and do fail in in understanding that their only real identity is where they came from and to who they will return. Here, it's really important to, to remember that the early Meccans, like the Arabs of Arabia in general, um, they did believe in not not all of them, but various tribes believed in a god. But they believed that this god was inaccessible, and that this god, in order to be accessed, needed mediators, and that's where the idea of idols came come from. Okay, that, that will revisit in other surahs, not in Surah Al-Fajr. However, this God, very much influenced by a lot of Greek and Romanistic cultures, and also by early Judaic cultures, This God existed to respond to the here and now, but once you died, you perished. Christianity had the idea that of resurrection, some forms of later Judaism had the idea of resurrection, not universally, 
but Greco-Roman cultures and early Judaic cultures believed there is no resurrection. By, by the way, some forms of the, uh, some early Judaic theologies believed that resurrection would be only for Israelites and that all the other races would perish. Only Israelites would be resurrected. And this is a critical point. That when Islam called upon the early Muslims, it ignited in them what they considered culturally to be the old mythology, the, the extinct mythology of resurrection. The Arabs or the early um, recipients in Arabia would hear about resurrection from Christians, would hear about the old mythology that believed in resurrection, but by the time Muhammad is there, the cool thing, if you were cool, if you were um, hip and happening, you know, if you were carrot, if you were with it, you had you no longer believed in resurrection. Now, of course, there there is a there is a very practical reason is that the the influential the the elite the aristocracy of Arabia did not want resurrection because resurrection meant accountability. And remember, so for instance, when Allah says, When Allah is, is reminding merchants and the aristocracy, do you really think you're not going to be held responsible for what you do on this earth? Do you really think that when you cheat, when you lie, when you, when you kill someone, do you really think that it is as you want it to be? What is it that you want it to be? And, and we, you know, that, that's the point that I will demonstrate, inshallah, in so many of the Quranic discourse, that the Meccans had latched onto Greco-Roman culture and early Israelite culture that there is no resurrection, there is no accountability, there is no justice, you die and you perish. Um, and for them, that was a very important point because if, if it was otherwise, it would cause a revolution in they understood what akhlaq was. They understood what shiam was, what good manners and ethics were. But ethics remained optional as long as they were a matter of reputation. So, you know, you could do the ethical thing either because you want to have a good reputation or you can do the ethical thing because you fear God and you know there is going to be accountability. What is the problem with doing the ethical thing largely for sociological reasons 
is that if you can get away with it, where it doesn't affect your reputation, you do it. So you, you, you betray what is ethical as long as you can get away with it. And that's precisely the type of morality that the, the Meccans had. It, yes, you know, be, uh, not cheating in, in trade was an honorable thing. They knew that. However, they knew that if you were from certain tribes, you can afford to cheat, and no one will dare impugn your honor because you're from a very influential tribe. So certain tribes would feel free to dictate their terms, even if it meant breaking their promises and committing fraud, because no one dared to hold them accountable. While... So that dynamic with morality and ethics is something that you that was very much present in in Meccan culture, and something that the Quran comes and confronts head on, and points the finger at the early recipients of the Quran, and by saying, "No, understand." that everything that transpires in your world is in fact nothing but a means to an end. The end is the hereafter. This life is not the real life. This is just your transportation to the real life. This is just a test. And there will be no escaping the consequences. And this point, you will notice, is hammered by the early Quranic revelations time and time. Nearly there is no surah among the earliest Meccan surahs that doesn't bring back, harp on that point of accountability again and again because it is transforming the, the, the moral code of the audience of the Quran by telling them, you know, you, you remember this mythology that you thought is nothing but a mythology that it's all dead, the idea of accountability and justice and resurrection. Well, guess what? It turns out to be absolutely true. And it is your belief that you just perish and that's the end of it is in fact what's untrue. Now, Surah Al-Fajr, like a lot of the early surahs, the way it it wants your relationship with with Allah, your attachments, your your identification with the divine, to move from associating the divine with a clerical class, a clerical class, the, the, um, uh, those who serve the idols, and a class of idols and the infrastructure that serves as shufa'a, the interceders, to an, a relationship with Allah directly connected to natural, the natural order. And again, step back and think, and think about this. 
you could associate, like a lot of the Mexicans, when they thought about God, they would think about the Kaaba, but they would also think about God in terms of the idols of the Kaaba, the numerous, the huge class of clergy that would receive the the expatriation payments, the, the money that various Meccans would pay to this idol or that idol to bless their trade or to bless their family or to, to whatever, the, the class that would uh, do the Islam, the Islam were uh, um, a form of... Um, a form of, um, uh, what is the word? there's a word for it, but basically where they have, would have arrows in a, in, a, uh, in a container and then you pay money and you ask question and then you pay the, the, um, the priest money and the priest would pull out an arrow and the arrow would either tell you uh, do or don't do. So... Sue's saying, but there's another word that I'm that I'm blanking out on. Um, yeah, like fortune fortune telling. What what did you write? Yes, that's it. Divination. Yeah, divination. So remember that there is a cultural infrastructure, but the cultural infrastructure of how you identify with God is very important. I mean, if in our modern life, for instance, a lot of people, the way, the, the, the minute they think of God, they think of the Muslim community that they grew up with that connected them to God. And that is why when they are disappointed in this Muslim community, they might lose their faith, or they might feel lost, or they might feel like, oh, well, you know, Muslims are hypocrites, so I don't know how I feel about God. The reason for that is that you've actually never believed. You never actually developed a relationship with the divine in the first place, you had a cultural definition of the divine. And so it is something that not a lot of people uh, point to or observe, but it is very important that the Quran repeatedly refers to nature, to creation, and as if telling these Muslims you want to understand God, look to the order of nature, look to God's creation, not to social institutions or cultural institutions or whatever infrastructure that had defined and shaped your relationship with God. So that is why the early Quranic revelations will often have Allah swearing by the movements of the night and day, the movement of 
planets, the movements of the sun and moon, the 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 seas, the mountains, the earth, the and so on and so forth. And as you're saying, reintroduce yourself to your maker through the handwork of the maker. To the fact that there is a carefully measured order to creation, and we know that the Quran refers, you know, repeatedly to the intricate balance of creation. Without the intricate balance, you would not exist, and things would not exist. And that that intricate balance is consistently sustained. But that intricate balance would also tell you that. In the same way that in an instant all reality will perish, there will be a new reality, and that's the reality of accountability. So Allah swears by the five things, by Al-Fajr, Al-Layal Al-Ash, the, the, the ten blessed days, and we talked about, about that, by Al-Shaf, the duality, and Al-Witr, the uh, singularity and the power of singularity and which the, the, so the Fajr and these are the two parallels the, the, the dawn and the night okay Well, Layli is a yes. There's a couple of points ju just to make about what the 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 um, language. Well, Layli is a yes. There has been an interesting discussion uh, about what does well Layli is a yes precisely mean. I I forgot the the, the study Quran. Can you? Uh, it's in my den. I'm just grabbing my uh, translation. I will, um, there, uh, so, the literal translation, um, let's see how they translated it. Okay, so the study Quran translates it as, uh, and the night as it recedes, uh, which is, I mean, a, an acceptable plausible translation. Um, but the issue, there is a discussion in the Tafsir, is it referring to the night prayers 
or is it referring to the night as it progresses? So the night passing before the the rise of Fajr, so it's as if the night passing before Al-Fajr comes about, or is it in fact referring to that that passes in the night? And here I'll just mention for those of you that know Arabic, some expressions so, for instance, um, when we say "Yesri laylu bijama'in famada," "Yesri laylu bijama'in famada," what what we're saying here is there are people that passed, that spent the night until the night went away. So, yesri could refer to the night itself passing or receding or progressing, or it could refer, like when you say, for instance, Layli Na'im, or Laylu Sahir, or Layl Yasri. Laylu Na'im means not that the night is sleeping, but that there is someone sleeping in the night. If you say Laylu Sahir, it doesn't mean that the night is staying up, but it means that there's someone who stayed up in the night. Similarly, when you say Layl Yasri, it could mean not that the night passes, but someone is passing in the night. So there is this interesting uh, grammatical debate. Uh, there is also, and an, there is a qira'at discussion. Why is it walayli either yasr without iya or yasri with iya? And some reports said, well, if there is a waqf, if if you pause after you say walayl idha yasr, then the ya goes away, and if the, if there is a wasl, if you don't stop, then you should say yasri with the ya. All of this is not critical for us. What is important is to basically understand is that Allah is... When Allah takes an oath, invoking natural uh, things in, the, in, in nature, Allah is pointing your attention to the fact that it cannot be without a creator and an intricate balance. It's as if Allah, to be quite honest, when, when I read the early surahs, I often feel as if Allah was talking to much later generations who adopt the completely illogical belief that all of this can be the result of coincidence or evolution. I mean, it, it is much more relevant to us than I think that, than the, the, the generations of the Prophet, because to them, the idea that 
it has to have be to be there has to be a creator. What was problematic for them is that well, there might be creators in the plural, plural, rather than a singular creator. For us, that what's problematic is that there is a creator at all, and then we adopt the completely illogical notion that that very carefully sustained order of night and day and seasons and gravity and so on can somehow just materialize out of nothingness and come to be out of nothingness. The early generations of Muslims understood that when Allah takes an oath, that when Allah uses something and swears by it, that it becomes very, Allah is inviting us to reflect on it. But their reflections, um, you, you know, it, it, perhaps they were not in a position to understand the um, how remarkable that Allah swears by these things as we are. Anyway, I, I want to move on. Um, Although this point, uh, we'll come back to it many times. Uh, because, you know, uh, the, uh, I've read enough of the so-called new atheists, um, the, the movement of the new atheists and the prophets of new atheism. I have to tell you, the prophets of new atheism, like, uh, what's his name? Um, I'm blanking out on their names now. It's been a long time since I've read their stuff. What? Oh yeah, Hitchens. Yeah, Christopher Hitchens and so and and company. I mean, it it is it is a new religion. New atheism is a religion, and it's uh, and and it it relies on elements of faith, very much like a religion. It reminds me a lot when I would read communists and they just tell us about certain things that certain movements and forces and interpretations of history that you just have to believe in. And ultimately there is nothing that proves it, but it just, and, and new atheism works in the same way. You just have to believe that out of nothing came something. And out of that nothingness and this complete chaos came this intricate order. And you just have to believe that science will explain it explain it someday. Yes, science can't explain it today. Yes, science has no clue how to explain the materialization of something out of nothing and the materialization of intricate order out of chaos. But just as an element of faith, you have to believe that the day will come where science will explain everything. That's what atheism is. And mocking religious beliefs, but not answering them. I mean, the, 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 the writings of the new atheists is full of, you know, funny quips and little sm smart-sounding statements. But ultimately, they're not responses. They, there's no philosophical response to anything and no even scientific response to anything because even evolutionary theory doesn't claim to explain creation 
It simply explains the fact that beings adapt to where they are. However, the new atheists turn evolutionary theory and biological sciences into a religion that explains these ultimate questions of origin and truth, which no real biologist claims. I've, I've never read a serious academic biologist, not one of these new atheism, uh, 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 who says, you know, I'm here to tell you where we came from. Because it's a question that is not answerable in science. The new atheists basically say, just trust us. Someday science will answer these questions. It, and so when you, when you read Qisara Sur, part 30 of the Quran especially, and, you, and, and part 29, uh, 29 and 30, and you find that Allah constantly says, look at nature, look at nature. If you're smart, you would pay attention and you would reflect and you would take it seriously. Okay. So, classic of the Meccan style, this early Meccan style, after the invocation of the Qasim, there Allah switches gear and reminds the audience, the recipients of the early Quran, that it is not just nature that speaks to you, but history speaks to you. Nature and history. And from the Quranic perspective, what is the ultimate lesson we get from history? And we'll talk in a second about exactly what these ayahs are saying, but the ultimate lesson we get from history is that whatever will rise will fall. As the Quran says elsewhere, that don't you know that that the, the when you are among the nations that are dominant on earth, trust that the time will come where you will fall. With a further element, that the rise and fall of nations is not happenstance, but that there is a God, and that that God aids nations in their rise and punishes nations through their fall. And that history itself is worthy of reflection to understand our maker and what our maker wants from us. Now, in this context, as the Quran often did, especially take, talking to the Quraysh of Mecca, as if Allah is telling Quraysh, Remember that there were other nations before you who thrived and who saw themselves as very powerful and mighty. But that ultimately, God decreed that they lose their power and their might and that they deteriorate. The early Arabs 
in the same way that the new mythologies about the mythology of resurrection, which they rejected, they had also heard mythologies about Ad, the tribes of Ad, uh, the tribes of Qom Saleh, um, sorry, So I I'm do it in an order fashion, yeah. So, oh, I, I'm, 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 that's why I blanked for a second. I skipped but let me finish the thought and come back to it. So, Allah will, 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 in, will invoke the historical memory of Ad wa Iram al Imad and of course the frown. But before we get there, I skipped over uh, ayah uh, five. The, the question, of course, is rhetorical. The the hijr is a person with a strong intellect. A person with a hijr is not just a aql, but is a aql that is endowed with sharpness and wisdom. Now, why was it called hijr? If you notice, it shares the etymology with hajar, <laughs> with rocks. It also shares the same etymology with hujra, a room, and it shares an etymology with hijr, means uh, there is a legal procedure when you, um, uh, when you take, a hijr is, um, what is the English word I'm looking for? Uh, for uh, when you, um, it's a legal action where you, you, you take someone's legal ability to make their own decisions um, and you now have the power to act as their agent like you know if your parent is, is going interdiction um, no it's another word N not usurp no no, anyway, I, there's a word, it's a very specific word there, but I'm blanking out, I can't remember it. But anyway, when you basically, you know, uh, you, you, if you have a, a, a parent who's becoming senile and you're worried that they're going to waste all their money, so, you know, you, that, that is called hijra in Arabic. And they, very interestingly, they all have the same relationship to the language. The reason intellect was referred to as hijr, if it is sharp and wise, is because it, what does a hujra do? What does a room do, do? What does the legal action of hijr do? It restrains your whims. What, what does a room do, a hujra do? It sets limits to your movements and protects you. So those who have who have a, a sound intellect, 
have a hijr, meaning they have something in their skull that is able to restrain them and to protect their protect them from whims and, and protect them from ill decisions. That's why in classical Arabic. And it wasn't a Quran, it was not, the, the, the Quran didn't, wasn't the first to use it that way. It was known to Arabs. They're, they're, they're referring to a wise, sharp-witted person as a Zu Hijr, a man with that ability. So, is the rhetorical question, can a person with a strong-witted, sharp mind understand why Allah swears by the natural order of things, the intricate balance between night and day. But where you get some of the most fascinating discussions is by the reference to the singularity and the duality. What And of course, you get some very interesting, especially in Sufi writings, very interesting things about why Allah uses the words that have a literal meaning that could be as simple as referring to a prayer. You know, two rak'ahs, one rak'ah. But at a much deeper level, refers to the nature of reality. That if you truly use your intellect, and let's imagine someone who sits there and thinks and thinks and thinks and prays and prays and prays for hours and days and weeks and months, and their mind has developed to the point that it achieved unity with existence. Let's imagine, and I'm taking this, of course, I'm, I'm stealing it from, from earlier sources. I can't remember which book. Anyway, what they will realize is that the very nature of creation is based on the principle of Coupling, what they, the, the, uh, the, the, that, that, in the same way there is night and day, energy is positive and negative, um, to everything there is an opposite thing. And that singularity, when it exists, it points to something that is not subject to the laws of duality. In other words, when singularity exists, it is no longer subject to the normal laws of physics, biology, and mathematics. So it is if, this is in the same idea of wajib al-wujud, that every Created things comes from a creator. That's the logic of duality. But 
when you reach a singularity, a true singularity, then that logic cannot be applied. We simply do not know because it's not in our realm of experiences. Um, I'll give you an example just of the of the of the flavor. Um, Where is it? Yeah. So here, for instance, this is from Tafsir Jilani, which gives you a flavor of that of what I'm talking about. First, I'm going to just read it um, in Arabic. Um, so, oh, it says, "والوتر أي الوجود الوحداني المطلق." المنزه عن التعدد والتكثر مطلقا في ذاته. This is the idea of the of singularity. الوجود الوحداني singular existence المطلق absolute المنزه عن التعدد والتكثر مطلقا في ذاته. That not subject to the laws that we know. Then he continues. Uh, so when he then he talks about qasam uh, uh, when, when swearing by the hij says فَهُوَ and then, uh, and then he goes on. Um, okay, then it gets too too difficult for. But anyway, so what he's saying is effectively that that mind that has able to go beyond the superficial laws of nature to understand the balance between the remarkable oneness of, of an absoluteness of the singularity, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's ultimate singularity, and that everything else that is created compared to the one is false and superficial. Okay, and so that and that, and again, you know, we are raised, we often find the Quran swearing by this or swearing by that, and we don't pause. We don't pause because they don't teach us to pause. But when you read the way early Muslims received this revelation and it transformed their entire life, it, to them, the, the the Quran intrigued them in ways where it called upon them to revisit the world and re-understand the world. And that's what the Quran should do to us if we can de develop that type of relationship. Okay, so th that's the qasam. Okay, so now the the 
people that uh, or the, the tribes that the Quran invokes as part of reflecting on history. So the tribe of Ad, the tribe of Thamud, and the, the tribe of Pharaoh. The most interesting thing I can tell you is from a historical perspective, very little can be known about Ad or Thamud or the, 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 the people of the Pharaoh. Or the Egyptians, perhaps the ancient Egyptians are the ones that we know the most about. There were a lot of mythologies as to where Ad and Thamud were exactly. And I've talked about this in the context of another surah uh, when we talked about uh, the Qawm Salih. Um, do we have any geographic locations or geographic remains for Ad and Thamud that survived to our modern age? And probably the short answer is no. We don't have any reliable... There, those who tell you, well, you know, it, it, it's the Petra in Jordan, I, all of that is speculative and not reliable. <clears throat> so the interesting points here. So we know that Ad, Qawm Ad, ألم ترى كيف فعل ربك بعاد إرام ذات العماد التي لم يخلق مثلها في البلاد وثمود الذين ذابوا الشخر الصخرة بالواد. So let's take it piece by piece. عاد is عاد بن عوس بن إرام بن سام بن نوح. So these are the descendants from the prophet نوح عليه السلام. Again, the, 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 the full name as it's been reported, although there are different versions, Ad bin Aus bin Iram bin Sam bin Nuh. And these are known as Ad al-Ula, whose prophet was Hud. The prophet was Hud to Ad al-Ula. The, the, the former Ad or the earlier Ad, there is a later Ad and there is a former Ad. And the Adil Ula, their prophet was Hud. There are reports that they resided in uh, in an area in, in Yemen. There are reports that they resided in what is today Jordan. There are even reports that they resided in Alexandria. There are even reports that they resided in Damascus. All probably the Alexandria reports are, 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 we can say, probably reliably false, and Damascus reliably false, and probably Jordan reliably false. What we do know about them is that re they resided in areas of Al Ahqaf. Al Ahqaf is a desert area, which seems to indicate that they were not. Um, an urban center like Alexandria or Damascus. Anyway, uh, 
some of the of the uh, stuff that you you read is that they resided in cities where they created flowing rivers of 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 uh, milk and uh, homes built of gold all of that is are, are fabrications that when in early uh, missionary movements in the early days of colonialism uh, Orientalist missionaries love to take these n narratives and to use them to try to convince Muslims that their tradition is so ridiculous. Look, you believe in cities built of gold. And uh, although Muslim scholars a long time ago have, you know, centuries before colonialism, had said that these reports were unreliable and they're not even worth going into. So, Ad, their prophet, is Hud, and we know that they were, they had reached a high level of power. They became very influential in the Near East area. In fact, they divided into a number of tribes and create a dynasty that was formed of a number of kingdoms. Um, our archaeological sciences are very backwards because whatever archaeology developed in the Muslim world developed as a result, purely as a result, of the interests of Western nations. So whatever colonialism was interested in, so colonialism was interested in Petra, in Jordan. Colonialism was interested in ancient Egyptian archaeology. Uh, for a variety of reasons. And so that's what developed. There, Muslim archaeology is very, very backwards. And so, you know, we have a lot of mythology, but very little archaeology that can, in fact, support anything. So the reference to Ad is, is a reference to this, this inherited historical narrative that the Arabs were aware of, the Ad existed, and the Ad ultimately was destroyed. Here you get some, when the Quran says, Iram, that Al-Imad, what is the Quran precisely referring to when it refers to Iram? And th that's where you get some of the um, considerable disagreements. I'll sum them up to say some said that when Allah says Iram, Allah is referring to the grandfather that Ad descended from. So remember that Ad descended from Aus, who descended from Iram, who descended from Sam, who descended from Nuh. Right? You don't have to memorize the names anyway. But so the great-grandfather of Ad is Iram. However, most scholars said, no, that doesn't make sense for a variety of linguistic arguments that it is in fact not referring to the grandfather of Ad, but referring to a tribe within the clan of Ad that Iram was just a tribe within the clan of Ad. And that specific tribe within the clan of Ad, 
had become famous, and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, comment on what Al-Imad is, but had become famous for Al-Imad. Question mark, what is Al-Imad? We'll get to that in a second. Some said, no, it's not either a grandfather nor a, a tribe within the clan of Ad, but rather Iram refers to the area that Ad inhabited. Personally, I think, you know, we, we don't need to resolve this debate. It is enough to know that, and this is the way I, I ultimately, what I conclude about these uh, verses, is that Allah is referring to Qawmu'ad and that Iram is an identifying um, lineage of Qawm Ad, whether it refers to specifically to, to uh, but it, it, whether it's like for, in the same way that Quraysh is no, you know, has the tribe of Banu Hashim. And we know that the descent, that Quraysh has a, a a a lineage that identifies identifies them. Now, so the, it's a reference that at least for the recipients of the Quran, they understood as a reference to Ad al-Ula, the influential tribe of Ad that had either become, and that's where the this the the debate about Imad centers. Iram that al-Imad. What is Al-Imad? Qawm Ad were famous among the Arabs, and we find even poetry where, you know, the, the, these Arab poets are imagining the glory of Qawm Ad for high-pillared buildings and not made of necessarily of palm trees, but high-pillared buildings, and that it took a considerable amount of technological awareness to construct these pillars. There is a second narrative about Qawm Ad that's very, very interesting. A lot of authorities insist that Qawm Ad were uh, among the race known as the giants. Have you ever heard the mythology about finding um, uh, big bone skeletons? Um, if you watch um, uh, programs about ancient aliens and stuff like that, and cryptids and weird things like that, they tell you that we, and, and this is not a scientific myth, it's true, that they found the skeletons of human beings that were giants. They, they, they were considerably taller than modern human beings. Are you writing something? Oh, Sharif says it's true. 
I believe in the Giants because I saw the, the, the bones. I mean, there, there's no explanation. They're just very big bones. Uh, so, anyway, the Arabs, there were a lot of Arab narratives about Qawmaad were be, being among the Giants. And so, is, is the Quran referring to Iram Dhat al-Imad? Is it referring to their stature or to their buildings? Honestly, I believe it's referring to their buildings, not to their stature. But I'm very intrigued by the idea that it's referring to their stature. But, you know, you, you, could, you could take it or leave it. It doesn't matter. So, Iram Dhat al-Imad, because Imad could even refer to their moral stature, not moral meaning their prestige. When you say Rajul Dhu Imad, it means a prestigious person, someone who has a lot of power. So when you say, Allah could be simply saying that these people who were very powerful once upon a time, and And of course, oh, when when the when the Quran says "Alati lam yuchlaq misluha fil bilad," the like of which was not created. That's because I I just remembered this. That that's why a lot of Quranic commentators said, "Well, if it was just their buildings." then why would the Qur'an say the like of which was not created? That that is an indication that it's referring to their actual physical length or that they're giants. A lot of other commentators said, no, it's figurative. doesn't necessarily mean that they are truly unique. That they, it doesn't mean that they are singular. It doesn't mean that they are watr, uh, to use the Quranic expression. It means that they are exceptional. So you can use the expression like the which, uh, uh, so for, uh, if I say to a human being, لا أعرف مثيل, I don't know the like of you. I don't know someone who is like you. That doesn't mean that I am truly saying you are an alien from outer space. It's just simply say, saying you are an exceptional human being. If I say it to the singular, if I say it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so if I say, لَيْسَ كَمِسْلِهِ شَيْءٍ Now here it's referring to Allah. Here, it becomes not a shaf, but it becomes a watr. Do you see what I'm saying? So here it becomes, you're referring to the singularity, the, the like of which there is none. So those who read the ref, early reference in the Quran to shaf al watr as hinting to the Quranic usage Saying, well, it, it, it's not, it's, it's already giving, giving us a hint that that doesn't mean that there is singularity. 
there's no way that we were going to resolve the debate. Just be aware that, you know, that there is something that was truly exceptional about Qawmaad and that they were truly powerful and that they dominated the land in which they live. They created a level of hegemony and they were feared and respected far more their power and influence, it far exceeded what Quraysh had ever achieved. Okay, Thamud, قوم صالح, الذين جابوا الصخرة بالواد. Some, especially contemporary Muslims, misunderstand this to believe that الذين جابوا الصخرة بالواد, that they built their homes in the mountains. Notice the Quranic expression, expression, الَّذِينَ جَابُوا الصَّخْرَ بِالْوَادِ They brought, or they crafted, or they used the stones from الواد, from the valley. We understand it to mean a mountainous valley, but what Qawm Thamud were known for was their ability to cut stones from mountains and to use these stones in their buildings. Now, elsewhere, the Quran refers to those who create out of the mountains beaut and farihin, luxurious homes. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean that they dig the homes into the mountain. It means that they use the rocks from the mountains to build elaborate structures. Uh, the reason I, I mention this or even posit this is that, again, you know, some missionaries and contemporary evangelists, nowadays evangelists, who are obsessed with finding the Quran, you know, they want to just find the Quran making some mistake or another. So they'll come and say, look, the Quran referred to Qawm Salih or Thamud as building homes in mountains. Well, these um, structures that exist in mountains found in Jordan or found in Yemen were tombs. They were not homes. Which means the Quran doesn't know what it was talking about. You find this on the net. I'm not, you know, in, 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 in this, you know. Oh, the Quran made it. And the, you know, when I read that, I, I thought, are you insane? The Quran, the Quran doesn't tell you that they lived inside the mountains. The Quran told you they made homes out of mountains. There's a huge difference. And by the way, by the way, even if the, the, in, in Arabic poetry, pre early Arabic poetry, the word bait could be used for a home and it could also be used for uh, a crypt or, uh, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, a mausoleum. So you could actually, you know, again, for all these young kids out there who 
read some missionary or evangelist and they, oh, I'm very confused, I'm lost, and so on. You know, there, things are only seem so overwhelming because you don't know enough. But the word bait, even if the Quran had used the word bait to refer to something in mountains rather than using mountains, uh, mausoleums could, could be referred to as bait. So that, that's, it's where, it's wherever you reside, living or dead, is your bait. That's in old Arabic. Of course, it's not so in modern Arabic. Okay. You know, I, I got a couple of emails, you know, people would say, oh, can you answer, you know, to us about the Quran, when the Quran mistakenly says, blah, blah, you know, and I don't respond to this stuff, but I, I just, it frustrates me when I find these undergraduates who are like, oh, I'm so confused, you know, I was taught the Quran never makes a mistake, and, you know, how could it make such a silly mistake, and, you know. All right. So we, we, we talked about that. Now we come to Fir'aun. Now, Fir'aun Quranic commentators noticed that not just here but elsewhere. The Quran will often pause when it comes to the mention of Fir'aun and provide details or focus and concentrate on Fir'aun more than it would when it would refer to earlier tribes. Some said that this is because Atharu Fir'aunu Baqiyah that the that Allah knew that unlike Qomad and Thamud, their historical remains will are gone. That when it comes to the people of the the the, the, the people of the Pharaoh, the Pharaonic people. Uh, whether it was the Hiksus in Egypt or or before the Hiksus or after the Hiksus, it, it doesn't matter. That in fact there will be historical remains and that you can actually visit and you can reflect upon. And the commentators who are of this school will often also refer to the body of Fir'aun. Uh, and, and these are as... That school of thought gained more and more adherence as in the modern age we suspect that we found the body of Fir'aun, although the Egyptian government has ordered the Egyptian museum to deny that this is the body of Fir'aun. And I mean, very odd, very, very odd. I, I, I had a friend who used to work in the Egyptian museum and he told, and it's actually, it was a she, and she told me that uh, she was under orders to show the body, but any anyone that asks her if this is the body of Fir'aun referred to in the Quran to say no, regardless of the historical evidence. And she was telling me the, the various historical evidence about the body she was showing me. And uh, in fact, she believed it was the body of Fir'aun, but that if 
she said so, she would be fired if not arrested by Amnadola. Very odd, very strange. Um, I know that the that the uh, Zahi Hawass, the 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 uh, the little gopher uh, that that the government has uh, appointed as the head of Egyptian antiquities, uh, w will destroy the career of anyone who says yes, the body of Pharaoh survived. It's very odd. I mean, why would the Egyptian government make it a point? To, to make it like an issue of national security, to deny that the body of Pharaoh might have survived. Anyway, whether the body of Pharaoh survived or not, I guess we will not know as long as this government is in power uh, because it will not allow any scientific examination of the body to either deny or confirm. But some have said well, the that Fir'aun had become a symbol for ongoing Tughyan. So if you read Tafsir al-Matridi, for instance, Tafsir al-Matridi goes into why precisely Fir'aun has become symbolic in the Qur'an for Tughyan and zulm for injustice and oppression. Um that the Quran goes through the trouble of telling us in, in considerable detail the, the dynamic between Moses and Pharaoh, of course, elsewhere, and Joseph and and, and Pharaoh of the, of the time, or at least the, the Malik of the time, the ruler of Egypt of the time, is that what the Quran is referencing is the paradigm of oppression and injustice. And that, and in fact, we know that the minute you say the Pharaoh in, in Islamic culture, it, it had become a symbol for oppression and injustice and uh, despotism in its worst form. Okay, so. Why does it say وَفِرْعَوْنَ ذِي الْأَوْتَادِ That's How did you translate Autad? Um, of the tent poles. Okay. It's very interesting that he chose tent poles. What is a watad? Autad is a plural for watad. And a watad is something that goes in the is pillared, it, whatever is used as a pillar. So here, when it says "wafirauna dil autad," is it referring, as a lot of Egyptian uh, Quranic commentators said, is it referring to the pyramids? Because the pyramids are autad; they are things that are like mountains, pillaring the earth. Or is it referring to the fact that all pharaonic temples had these huge pillars that they stand, if you go to visit any of the pharaonic uh, um, Karnak temples and so on, that immediately you notice these huge pillars. Or is it referring to, so uh, some commentator said it's referring to pyramids. That 
these are the people of the pyramids. Some said, no, it's referring to the fact that the that Pharaoh would use an enormous amount of labor to build these temples with very high pillars and very huge pillars. And these pillars, by the way, in, in ancient societies were a sign of power and wealth. The more elaborate, the more bigger, the bigger your pillar, the greater the sign that you have dominated and control earth. Third school said, no, it refers to the method of torture that Pharaoh would use against his opponents. And that's what Altad referred to. Pharaoh had become infamous. Pharaoh Musa had become infamous for the fact that he was fond of when he would torture his opponents, he would tie them to four poles anchored on the ground and then start ripping them piece by piece. So they're sprawled out and then torture them by cutting them up. So there's a story that is, is, said, that is reported in Hadith sources uh, uh, about Fir'aun al-Awtad, um, you won't find it in every tafsir, but you definitely, um, uh, the tafsir that rely on akhbar, uh, you find it, that Fir'aun had a minister, I think a, a, like a minister, if I, a minister, some of, one of the finance ministers, it was a minister of, of, um, that minister had converted to Moses to the religion of Moses and was hiding his face. And that minister had a daughter. That daughter worked as a maiden to Pharaoh's daughter. So Pharaoh had a daughter, and that minister had a daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter employed the minister's daughter as one of her maiden girls. So one day she's calming her, the, the minister's daughter is calming the hair of uh, Pharaoh's daughter and she drops the, the comb. I, I, I can't hear myself, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but you, you know, you comb your hair with. I can't hear it, so I don't know what I'm, if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's okay? Okay. So, uh, she drops her comb, and when she she blurts out uh, something to the effect like, A'udhu Billah, you know, oh my, I mean, God forbid. So, Pharaoh's daughter hears her when she blurts out that and says, what did you say? She says, uh, Oh, I'm, you know, whatever. She tries to back out of it. Pharaoh's daughter said, no, no, you know, you have to tell me. You don't believe that my father is God? Because you just mentioned God. So the minister's daughter tells Pharaoh's daughter, okay, I'll level with you. I don't believe your father is God. Here's what I believe. I believe in, 
la ilaha illallah, there is only one God, and and uh, Moses is a prophet of God, and, and so on. So Pharaoh's daughter goes and tells her father about the minister's daughter. So Pharaoh arrests the minister's daughter and tortures her using the Autad method. And in the course of this severe and horrible torture, she confesses that her father is a convert. And so they go and arrest the father, who's the minister, and they torture him. And when they torture him, anyway, they, they torture him for a long time and then they kill him. So now they've killed the minister and they killed the daughter of the minister. Pharaoh's wife, one of his wives, had Asya, her name was Asya, had converted as well and was a follower of Moses. And when she sees the horrible death of the minister and his daughter, and they don't, they, although they're tortured to death, they refuse to tell Pharaoh that his own wife had converted. She becomes livid. And she says, you know, these people were so brave, they were tortured to death, and they didn't confess my name, they didn't spill their guts about my conversion. She goes and confronts Pharaoh, and she says, you're disgusting, I hate you, you know, how could you do this to these poor people? Pharaoh says, so, you're a follower of Moses yourself, you will go back, you will repent, or I'm going to torture you to death. She refuses, and then she's tortured horribly and eventually killed, and using the Otad method. And from these narratives of the horrible torture and killing of various people that, for, that they became known as in, in various narratives as Awtad. Now, so when he says, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, الَّذِينَ طَغَوْا فِي الْبِلَادِ فَأَكْثَرُوا فِيهَا الْفَسَادِ Those who have committed oppression in God's land, فَأَكْثَرُوا فِيهَا الْفَسَادِ so, and spread corruption in the land, Mufassirun like Al-Mataridi will say this is a reference to the nature of Al-Tugha, the nature of the unjust and oppressive rulers is that they torture and imprison people. In, remember that in among the earlier, and I, I've written uh, the whole entire rebellion book to... to um, to, to in part to discuss this, is the idea of torturing your political dissidents was seen as a corruption, as ifsad fil ard, and as a form of tughyan, of oppression. And some of the, the, the Fir'aun is horrible, not just for his kufr and his arrogance, but also for his despotism, and also for his oppression, and also for the fact that he tortured people. Now, the others who said, no, 
فرعون ذي الاوتاد اوتاد ريفيرز تو ذا هاي بيلرز اور تو ذا بيراميدز اور وات ايفر سي ذا الذين طغوا في البلاد فاكثروا فيها الفساد فدزنت نيسيسيرلي ذوز هو كوميتد اوبريشن ان ذا لاند اند سبريد كوربشن ان ذا لاند دزنت نيسيسيرلي ريفير تو تورتشر بير سي but it refers to the fact that Pharaoh was arrogant, monopolized wealth, committed a great amount of injustice, uh, created an aristocracy that oppressed those who were below it. And elsewhere, the Quran constantly talks about that, that among the sins of Pharaoh is that he created classes of people that oppressed other classes of people, that created stratas within society that would oppress other stratas within society. Let's, let's take a short break. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So even when the, the, the Quran says, وَتَنْحَتُونَ مِنَ الْجِبَالِ بِيُوتًا فَارِهِينَ that as we said that you, you 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 sculpt homes from the mountains it doesn't necessarily mean that you sculpt your homes inside the mountains jibal that you you sculpt homes from mountains you could you carve out rocks from mountains that you build your homes or it could even refer to biutan here could refer to mausoleums or Uh, places where you house the dead. Anyway, so the important point though, when we um, the, going back to those who have caused oppression and spread corruption in the land so Allah punished them God is ever watchful and holds people to account now note here A number of commentators noted that in the same way that the surah starts out by reminding us of the duality and the singularity, the, thi- the, the sin that we find in Qawm Ad and Thamud and Qawm Fir'aun the earmark of these tribes is that they imagine their own power as independent and singular in, uh, in, in the height of elitism they are unlike no other they approach the world in which they live with great deal of entitlement but there is a a further point to take note of here and that is 
we notice that every despot that effectively demands to be worshipped in God's stead treats himself as a singularity. So, for instance, if you see the way people talk in, in Egypt, talk about Assisi, the president of Egypt, or people in Syria talk about Bashar, they talk about him as if he's a singularity. And in fact, if you tell Egyptians uh, overthrow Sisi or Sisi shouldn't rule, they say, well, who else can rule Egypt? Or who else can rule Syria? Or who else can... That's the nature of dictatorship, is for a human being to, to, to think that they have no equal, that they have an absolute claim to the truth. They're not subject to shura. They're not subject to the power of another. They're not subject to the account to, to the, they're not accountable to another. And that that is not just the nature of despotism, but that's the nature of evil. So when I part when I've said in the past that the the reason that Islam was revealed to these Arabs is because they were free spirited. They, they were human beings that could create a civilization because they were free-spirited human beings. They, 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 they rejected the idea of subordination to another. And so we find this, these remarkable parallels in Surat Al-Fajr that even if you didn't know the specific meanings of the words, just reciting Surat Al-Fajr you felt these meanings in your heart. You felt that it is telling you in your heart that you either approach this world with an awareness that only Allah is singular and unique and has no parallel and has no equal. But any human being in any civilization that imagines that as a ruler, as a tribe, as a race, as an ethnicity, that they are unique and superior, they become part of the corruption. And, and that their ultimate fate is to answer to God. Inna rabbaka labil mirsad. God is ever watchful and God has set laws, has set laws that dictate that people suffer the consequences of oppression and corruption sooner or later. So there is a, you know, the... The, the the literalist said, well, you know, with, with the Qawm Ad and Thamud and Fir'aun, they were punished either with wind, Allah sent a wind that destroyed, destroyed them, or an earthquake, 
that cracked the earth and swallowed them up, or was the parting of the Red Sea and drowning. But those who said that there is a ma'na majazi, there is a metaphorical meaning, said that, yes, they, these people were punished with wind, earthquake, and drowning, but the moral of it is the consequences of corruption on earth and injustice and despotism. Is that the Asasul Mulk al the basis for building any, any mulk, any power, any sovereign, is justice. You deviate from justice, the consequences will be like being overtaken by in a drowning or an earthquake or an overwhelming wind. So the, the destruction that befalls injustice, that befalls people from the consequences of injustice, doesn't necessarily have to be a blowing wind or an earthquake or drowning. But the practical effect, the tahluka, the, 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 the being cast into ruin. So that's, that's why when Allah talks to the early Muslims and says, if you do not maintain the sadaqah, if you do not maintain jihad, that is casting yourself onto ruin. What Allah is alluding to here are the rules of that are the um, the rules that govern history and social reality and historical reality that are every bit as constant and stable as the rules of nature themselves. So that is why when when you read in Islamic literature and they tell you that we foresee the consequences of injustice, that injustice will result in ruin. They see that as part of the, the social laws that created. Justice maintains mulk, maintains states or societies. Injustice, corruption, and if sadful odd, corrupting through despotism and injustice results in ruin as part of the laws that God dictated. Okay, so so here in the in the, the translation who tyrannized the land and increased corruption therein. So thy Lord poured upon them the scourge of punishment. So that's all we've dealt with that. Truly thy Lord lies in ambush. I don't like that. In ambush is not. Inna rabbakala bil mirsad. In ambush is not. A, 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 a. Mirsad comes from the word rasada. And rasada means to keep watch over something in a meticulous and systematic way. 
So when you say inna rabbaka labil mirsad means that Allah is ever watchful and aware and capable of delivering punishment. Now, many commentators said the punishment is not just on this earth as in allowing you to suffer the consequences of tyranny and oppression and injustice, but also in the hereafter. If I would sum up this very first portion that calls upon you to reflect upon the laws of nature, the Fajr, the Layal Ash, the, the sacred time, and and the movement of the night, or what moves in the night either, the laws of history and sociology, tyranny results in destruction, if you equate yourself with the singular, if you make your rulers equal to God, if you imagine yourself as a nation, as a race, as a people, as singular and unique, you, you give yourself privileges that you deny others, the results are foretold and already known. And that the results are, par are part of the namus, part of the laws of creation that God has weaved into existence. Furthermore, rest assured that even if you don't feel the consequences in your here now, in your life on this earth, in the hereafter, the consequences will be waiting for you. Nothing escapes the watch of God. And that's what Bil Mirsad means, that nothing escapes God's watchful eyes. Now, note here, and I, and I go back to the theme of accountability. Because what the Quran is telling its audience is that don't think that you exist in vain. Whatever is done on this earth, there is a scale of justice that has to be fulfilled. And the, I, the myth that you can do something and it has no consequences for you and others is exactly that, a myth. Okay, so I just want to make sure that I didn't miss anything before we move on. Okay. Now, in again, classic, typical of the style of the early Meccan surahs, there is a shift at this point 
from the larger phenomena of existence, the meta, uh, meta picture to a micro picture within this, the, 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 the heart of, and mind of human beings. So it invited you to, ref, to reflect upon the larger picture of nature, to understand the singularity of Allah, and to reflect upon the movement of, of history and sociological laws. But then it takes you to the individual level the level of your own private being, your own consciousness, to tell you how the micro is related to the macro, or how the macro is related to the micro. To put it simply, well, if you're going to start with yourself, what is it within yourself that leads to the type of arrogance where human beings forget accountability, the type of arrogance that leads to human beings forgetting consequences, the type of arrogance that leads to human beings uh, becoming, um, forgetting about nature and the laws of creation. How does that meta view relate to the micro view? فَأَمَّا الْإِنسَانُ إِذَا مَبْتَلَاهُ رَبُّهُ فَنَعَمَهُ فَأَكْرَمَهُ فَيَقُولُ رَبِّي أَكْرَمًا وَأَمَّا إِذَا مَبْتَلَاهُ فَقَضَى عَلَيْهِ رِزْقَهُ يَقُولُ رَبِّي أَهَانًا So now it, it goes to the individual level. Uh, let me see how this, this uh, oh, we're getting to 715. Uh, huh? Okay. Um, so, for, as for human beings, whenever their Lord tests them and honors them and blesses them, they say, my Lord has honored me. And as for whenever God tries them and straightens their provisions, they say, my Lord has abased me. Nay, but you honor not the orphan. And and so on, and, and, and then it goes on, nor, nor you urge the feeding. So let's just focus. So now, when it shifts to the individual level, it alerts the recipients of the Quran to a paradigm shift a paradigm shift that for early Muslims were very important, and for us as Muslims, if we truly believe it, becomes very important. That whatever you have is a test from Allah. Your life is a test. Whether it is, a good, whether it is good or bad, both are a test from Allah. So what is, what is the problem with human psychology? The problem with human psychology is that when God gives human beings generously, they allow the, God allows human beings to thrive, like Ad and Thamud and Fir'aun, to be rich and powerful and 
you know, whatever it counts as good in life. They are tempted to believe that this means that God is pleased with them. And that this means that they are in a good position vis-a-vis God and the cosmos. At the same time, when God denies them, they believe that this is an indication that God might be angry at them. So, but in reality, both are a test. There is no correlation between wealth and power and God's pleasure and displeasure. And in fact, and that's the paradigm shift, and in fact, the fact that your life on earth is going well, and you're doing well, and you are wealthy and thriving and free of problems could be an indication that God, that your relationship with God is horrible. And the fact that you are going through an enormous amount of hardship could be an indication that you are very close to Allah. Now, don't think we're all raised with these ideas, but try to imagine the impact on the very first believers as they're told there must be another way for you to look at your relationship to to understand your relationship with the with the divine with the singular other than material wealth material wealth is not an indication of whether you are in good standing or not good standing with Allah. Something else is a measure of that. What that something else is, is a good stopping point. (laughs) So we can stop at a cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. So, Okay. okay, so let's, let's pray. So we pray, and so we we we're just gonna take five minutes to pray, and then we'll do Q Q and A if there's any. Right. So if um, we'll start with questions related to the surah. So if if anyone has questions, please um, send them in the comments um, on the YouTube the live live stream, um, and then after that we'll see how much time we have left. Oh look at those. Oh look. Oh, oh my God. You see, I, I I think they're proof of the divine. Yeah. And we, we, the the human beings somehow their consciousness becomes translated into a sense of being and purpose. And that that move from consciousness to being and purpose is impossible without a creator. And with animals that are all instincts, especially instincts that are not consistent with self-preservation, are impossible without a creator. I mean, the new atheists are insane, but... 
you know, uh, the, be, before you ask me the, the question, uh, questions, if, if there are any, the Amal Ibsanu is a Mabtalahu Rabu for Akramahu and Amahu, Yakulu Rabbi Akraman, Amma is a Mabtalahu for Kadra, Alehi Riskahu for Yakulu Rabbi Ahanan. This is probably one of the hardest emotional challenges to human beings because our nature, by just the way we are made, is that when, when things are not going right for us, immediately we think the first inclination, if we're believers, is that God must be angry at us. Imagine the hardest test is that if you, to lose a loved one. Now, the Prophet ﷺ lost so many loved ones. And when I think, when I try to put myself in his shoes, and I think of the number of children that he lost in his lifetime, a harder test is not possible. The level of poverty and need. I mean, one of the, the saddest developments in history is that when they tore down the Prophet's home, because the Prophet's home was so humble, so simple, it, it, to imagine that someone who he lived his entire life in this extremely limited space and yet that level of poverty did not interfere in his relationship with Allah is a lesson that we all badly needed. Um, anyway, okay, so was there any questions? Um, Where did she go? Even though, you know, we have a lot of people coming in. 
And so they've got their dogs on their lap. So it's really important. Um, one of my, our goals, my goal in particular, but I mean both of our goals is to really elevate the position of dogs, especially with Muslims. So I really try to take every opportunity to you know, give a shout out to these beautiful creatures. And so I wanted to make sure people understood what he was responding to, because we have two very cute four-legged attendees to the halakha today. So we didn't want to let that pass. Um, okay, so let's see. Um, it's important to know the location of the, these cottons, Q-A-I-M-S, that are mentioned in the Quran or only the wisdom behind it or both? I'm sorry, I don't know what a cotton is. Um, right now, the, sorry, someone just, um, just joined. So we're starting with um, questions related to the surah that we covered. Okay, so um, I, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, is the person on the line? Yeah. Ask them what they mean by qa'im, because the, the surah doesn't use uh, the word qawama or uh, it, it, it refers to zil awtad. And I, I, they might. Nations. Um, uh, Oh, you mean, oh, he means ka'aquam, not ka'im. That's how, sorry, okay. that's how it's spelled. I don't okay. know Arabic, so sorry. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. No, yeah, it is, that, that's a good question. Um, efforts to locate the qawm ad or qawm thamud, um, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, to be one of these arrogant academics who say whether something is impossible or not possible. But as, as far as we know, as of now, with the fact that Islamic archaeology is so backwards, the, the, I mean, the... I, everything I've read in archaeology, and I went through a period where I was reading quite a bit in archaeology, uh, I, I, it, it dawned on me that our archaeological in interests are nearly uh, appendages to the West. If the West is interested in something, then... Uh, and our even our, our knowledge of archaeology, it, it results largely from training in the West. So all the archaeologists that work in the Islamic world have been trained in the West and their historical interests are from the West, which means that unfortunately or fortunately, there is no archaeology that is driven by the Quran in a similar way that there is an archaeology that is driven by the Bible. I mean, think of Israeli archaeology. Israeli archaeology is completely biblically driven. It's true that Israeli archaeologists don't always end up confirming what is in the Bible, but the funding, the search, is sparked by the narratives of the Bible. 
there is also an a, a, a substantial archaeology that is driven by Christian Bible or Christian interests in the Bible. Um, nothing like that exists in the Islamic world, which means that we really have no clue as of now where Qawm Ad or Qawm Thamud were other than the historical narratives. And the historical narratives are so conflicting and inconsistent that it's really difficult to um, come out with any serious conclusions. Um, you, you know, it, when you have something like Qawm um, Ad, and you have some sources that tell you they, they were in Damascus, and so the sources tell you that they were in Yemen, and other sources tell you that they were in Arabia, and other sources tell you they were in Alexandria, and other sources tell you that they were in today's Jordan. It, it unless you have some archaeological or anthropological research, it, it it really just becomes very conflicting. Now, but I agree with a lot of what theologians said that it doesn't seem that their geographical positions is really important to the theological message. The theological message, the, the moral lesson, is that to know what, interestingly, for those who um, uh, uh, you know, watch programs like uh, Ancient Aliens and stuff like that, um, it, to me, uh, I'm always struck by the fact that these programs end up confirming what the Quran says in that there were people in, in the lost history of the world, the history before history, that were technologically advanced, and that they were so technologically advanced to a degree that would surprise us. In these programs about ancient aliens, they find them so technologically advanced that they... They say, oh, well, there must have been aliens because they couldn't have been so technologically advanced and their history has been completely lost. Well, they're wrong. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be aliens. It, it, it could very well be that people like the Aztecs and the Incas and uh, the, the, the uh, civilizations of Mesopotamia and, and Yemen and so on were, in fact, remarkably technologically advanced and had dominated the earth and had reached great heights in their civilization, all to have it come crashing down because of their despotism and injustices and inequities. And the lesson is very powerful. I mean, imagine on Surat al-Fajr. I often read Surat al-Fajr and I think this way. Imagine if the wealth, why did Allah give Arabia, forget Saudi Arabia, Arabia, give Arabia and the, the lands of the former Muslim caliphate, where the Khilafah used to be. Why did Allah give them so much oil? Imagine if all this 
hard currency, all these billions and billions of dollars were used instead for consumption and luxury items and pleasure items and used to fill the coffers of former colonial powers, used to uphold the British economy and the French economy and the Danish economy. Imagine if all this cash was actually used for just and equitable purposes. Would there be any doubt that you would have a thriving Islamic civilization? Perhaps, perhaps, the like of which history had not seen. I am talking, I mean, that amount of wealth could have created an Islamic civilization that exceeds the achievements of the Ottoman civilization. Logic, I mean, just look at, at the amount of money Allah gave. We, we had colonialism, right as colonialism was ended, was a period of domination. Allah gave us this gift, this tons and tons and tons of free money. In fact, the key to energy in the entire world, at the time when no one in the world, we didn't have Russian petroleum yet, we didn't have American petroleum yet, we had Arabian petroleum. Arabian petroleum made the cars and the tanks and the airplanes, the early cars and the early tanks and the airplanes of World War I and World War II move. They were the source of energy for the entire world. Colonialism fought World War One and World War Two, largely on the basis of Arab oil, or Middle Eastern oil, or Muslim oil, to be honest, Muslim oil. But the fact that Muslims did what Qawmaad and Thamud and Fir'aun do, they made the rulers into gods. The king of Saudi Arabia is a god. You can't second-guess him. You can't defy him. You can't disobey him. You can't, you can't, they're God. The ruler of Egypt is a God. The ruler of Syria is a God. The ruler of Iraq was a God. The fact that they and all that wealth was wasted. Do you think God, who is watchful and who makes people suffer the consequences, Aren't we seeing the consequences right now? Aren't we seeing the mess that Muslims are in? These are the consequences. I mean, from a theological perspective, you had colonialism. You were dominated. I gave you the key to overcome colonialism, to rebuild the Islamic civilization, to create khilafah unlike anything history had seen. The entire world would have had to depend on you for energy and for an unbelievable amount of wealth, enough wealth to make every Muslim on the face of this earth well off. No need, no poverty, nothing. What, what destroyed us? Inequity. Bad distribution of wealth. You have Sheikh Hadis and Sheikh this 
who have billions of dollars in their bank accounts in Switzerland and France, billions of dollars, while other Muslims can't even... Isn't this the story of Ad and Thamud? Didn't the Quran basically tell us what we are living? So when I find these, you know, these Muslims who like, oh, you know, why are we going? Everything is so miserable that they start losing faith in Allah. Well, really what you're losing faith is in yourself. Because you are just living the consequences of Ad and Thamud. You are living the consequences of allowing that gift from Allah to be in the hands of king this and queen this and uh, prince this and princess this. You're living the consequences. You adopted the mythology of blind obedience. Whatever the ruler says goes. That's Allah's will. Even if they uh, torture you, even if they whip you, you have to obey. Okay, well, here are the consequences. Isn't this the, the, the singularity that Allah talked about? What is the difference between a qawm fur'aun and, and this despotism and oppression? So understand the moral lesson because the moral lesson is present and overwhelming. It, it is so relevant to us that it speaks to our generations that are basically the, the, the lost generations. The generations that are suffering the consequences of inna rabbaka labil mirsad. And the challenge, either we try to fix things or further generations will perish like the generations before them. I actually was sort of, as I was telling you the story of the Egyptian museum, I was trying to remember um, which pharaoh it was that that um, Egyptian antiquities guide. Who had the? She actually had the masters, and she 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 was like she told me the entire story, and I I can't remember it now, but I can find out. I mean, I can easily find out because after I talked to her I I went home we lived in Roxy and I made notes about my conversation with her um, and so I'm tempted to say it was Ramses II but I, I don't want to be committed to that because um, he, he was a rather distinctive because his of the color of his hair and also when his body was found uh he was frozen in a strange physical position was his hand was sort of raised and it is said that he died or he drowned um as his hand was raised as the water was coming at him when i i actually saw the body and the hand was raised a bit like that like this and it was frozen in that position um I'll look it up, inshallah. I, I can't remember right, right now. I, I, I should have predicted that someone might ask this question and looked it up yesterday, but I didn't. Okay, next question. Um, we discussed the idea of reflecting upon creation to know God 
and the verse then transitions to the issue of balwa. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Yeah. Um, which some have taken. Test. Okay. Which some have taken to be not referring to testing, but of a process of becoming to know oneself and God. Related to this is the issue of our purpose, which you just mentioned. Having just read Alastair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, I've been thinking about the issue of the human telos and how virtues and ethics are integral to our telos. This is a huge concept, but I was wondering whether you could offer some brief remarks on our telos and, if possible, how virtues fit into our telos. Yeah, I actually, um, uh, in uh, when I wrote Speaking in God's Name, I... If I remember correctly, it's in, it's in either Speaking God's Name or in Reasoning with God. I don't remember which book. But one of my books, I, I cite to um, um, the After Virtue, that particular book, um, because like you, I, I saw the, the, the very clear parallels with Islam. Um, and I very much do believe that the transformation that the Quran, the, the dynamic that the Quran calls for, and the transformation that the Quran tries to create within human beings is, is not simply thinking of things as I am being tested so that I endure in patience. Because every time that patience is mentioned, it is also mentioned coupled with al-amal salih which is effectively virtues, the, the performance of virtuous acts. And even in Surah Al-Fajr, and in, in so many of the other surahs, <coughs> Immediately, when it mentions the defect within us, that we, we think that wealth is equal to an indication of our spiritual state, and, and, and that's a natural inclination, but it immediately tells us, no, you're, you're, what defines you are your virtuous deeds. Whether you take care of the yatim, the orphans, whether you feed the needy, the, the, and, and, and that is the typical Quranic dynamic, is that it is constantly saying it is your acts of virtues that will define you and define your status with God. It is not simply your ability to endure. Yes, sabr is very important. Yes, patience is, is important. But what do you add? So, without getting into, because, I mean, I, I, I'm, if we open this door of, I, I think, if, if anyone can remind, I think in, I wrote about human telos in, in one of my writings. I don't remember which, do you remember? I think speaking in God's name. Was it speaking in God's name? Of, but it could be both, too. 
But I, I, I seem to remember speaking God's name. Okay. Anyway. No, I think speaking in God's name, or or reasoning with God. Yeah, it's horrible when you can't, when you can't remember. <laughs> um, anyway, um, Yeah, I mean the, the 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 issue of the question of that needs because while we have a great deal of classical material that have been written on human virtues and the the virtues that should define the purpose of a human being it has not been translated by modern theorists into the language of modern-day philosophy. And so, and, I, and I've had this experience with several philosophy students. They start out with um, reading Western philosophy, and then when they go back to Islamic sources, they can't figure out, so they, they open either bo simple, simple books about Kutub Makarum al Akhlaq, and in there they don't find philosophical sophistication, or they open books, uh, uh, books of Kalam, uh, like Ibn Taymiyyah's reply to Greek logicians, and, what they, and they can't decipher the language enough to be able to tie it to modern discussions about telos and virtues and human purpose. And so things are left there. And I, I think it would be a great, I mean, that, that's a, an area, a huge area of deficiency. Um, to go back and reread the, the, the classical sources and recast this material in a in language that engage, engages modern philosophy and modern philosophical discourses, as far as I know, we don't have anyone who's done that. Uh, even someone like uh, Zaki Nagib Mahmoud, uh, the Egyptian fellow, or some of the Egyptian philo uh, Arab philosophers, they're either completely secular, or they are simply grafting Western philosophy onto the Islamic tradition in a very superficial and unreal fashion. So they'll grab this sentence or this concept and say, oh, well, that's equal to, let's say, the idea of telos in modern Western philosophy without working out analytically the fully what the, the the connotations of this argument the closest person that i know who's actually done it i mean done some of it in a real way is surush uh, and but surush of course belongs to a certain western philosophical school and he seems to be very wedded to it um so anyway okay let's, is that good enough Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, so I think that's all the questions we have um, that came through on this surah. 
Um, there's a, a question, I know this is kind of a big question, but I'll throw it out there. Um, what is the distinction between being a Muslim and a mu'min? Fred Donner claimed original, the original identity of Muslims was mu'minun, according to the Quran. And maybe you can just touch upon, you know, if you've talked about it elsewhere. You, you wanna um. Well, okay. The Quran itself it expressly says um, that in addressing converts, certain converts to Islam who had converted as Muslims, and it tells them, don't say that you are mu'minun, say that you are muslimun, meaning that you really are just Muslim, by Muslim, but you don't have iman in your heart. So it's it's criticizing, and there is a context to this verse, a historical context, and that's what Fred Donner is is referring to. Um, in Islamic theology, there is a distinction between a Muslim and a mu'min. A a Muslim is someone who has taken the shahada and in a at a time when citizenship was defined according to your religious identity being a muslim from not being a muslim defined your citizenship as far as muslim countries were concerned or muslim dynasties and empires were concerned so literally the question when when you traveled from one location to another the question was as to how to categorize you legally as to what access to courts you have as to what taxes you paid as to what rights you had to own land or uh, or rent land as to whether you would serve in the army or not serve in the army as to what jurisdiction uh, the police had over you. All types of things were defined by whether you were you were categorized as Muslim or not Muslim. And there is no doubt that many people categorize themselves as Muslim for the purposes of what we today call citizenship, but what for at their time called affiliation for their official affiliation, um, you know, for better or for worse. And there were many reasons that people could want to be uh, affiliated as Muslim or as Muslim citizenship. But whether Iman, you had Iman or not, that's a separate matter. And not every Muslim is a mu'min, but every mu'min is a Muslim. In the sense that that iman is, and I don't want to get into tawhid al-rububiyyah and tawhid al-uluhiyyah and all that stuff, but at at a minimum, that what has you're not just officially a Muslim, you're not just a person who has taken the shahada, but you're a person who, in fact, has a genuine belief 
that you are from Allah and that you are returned to Allah, that a genuine desire to submit to Allah and that zen, that desire to submit has been translated into not just your system of belief but the actions that affirm that belief so actions so at a minimum you follow the five pillars of Islam you you fast you pay your zakah you do your psalm and and you in fact beyond that you are guided by the desire to achieve the full meanings of submission to Allah. Now, of course, submission to Allah could be in a, understood in a very literal form or in the form of virtual. So there are those who believe that, well, I submit to Allah as long as I think of everything as halal and haram in a technical sense. You know, do I put nail polish or I, to do, when I do my wudu, I don't put nail polish. But those who believe that I don't submit to Allah unless I feel Allah in my heart and I feel Allah's presence everywhere I go. Both are iman. Both are iman. But what levels of iman is where it gets, we start having serious discussions. You know, that iman itself has gradations and levels between those who don't know God other than a sovereign who commands, who rewards and punishes, and those who are, when Allah says, Allah is with you wherever you go. There are people who that translates to, well, I don't feel Allah, but I know that Allah sees me and will either reward me or punish me, and I don't want to be punished, and I want to be rewarded, so I adjust my behavior accordingly. And there are those who say, no, Allah is with me wherever I go, and I feel Allah. I feel Allah's presence. I, regardless of punishment or reward, I feel the divine presence. And both are iman. There's so much more you can say about this, but... Okay, so I think we have time maybe just for one more question. And um, I'm going to pull, actually, we did get an email this this week, and the professor wanted me to remind him about this question and that he would answer it in the halakha. So I'll, I'll read you the email. Um, it says, I am studying interior design in an art school, and there I have a course of drawing in which we draw objects, nature, etc. But now we have started to draw human faces and figures, and I know that we aren't allowed to do that in Islam. Can you kindly tell me what shall I do in this case as it is part of my course? And I have to do it, but it's also not allowed in Islam. How shall I repent or no repentance is necessary as I am helpless in this regard? I don't know. Uh, I don't know who told you drawing faces in Islam is haram. Um, but there's no prohibition. That's absolutely not true. Uh, the the only thing that we do we have or where the debate occurs is about us the creating creating human figures, 
I mean, the Rasm al Ashsam or Sun al Ashsam, which was understood as statutes. Um, yeah, oh, statute. Sta, sta, statue. 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 I, I see. Statutes are, are legal. Oh, statutes are the, the, the <laughs> statues. Um, okay, but from a, a, you can even look into Islamic art, and you will see that Muslims were drawing faces um, from as as soon as the the Islamic art uh, developed. Um, it's a it's a remnant the. the when Wahhabism, Saudi Islam was still Wahhabi, Saudi Wahhabi scholars would say that drawing in all its forms uh, of human bodies and human faces, drawing of animal, even animal figures, is all haram. Now, these same Saudi scholars that said that have now reversed course. So all of them went from it's haram. After MBS came to power, they, they all told us we were, no, no, it's not haram anymore. So, you know, and these are the only moderns that I know of that that used to say it was haram, and they all overnight discovered that uh, they were in error. But the origin of the thing, the origin of the thing is that the Prophet, والسلام, there is hadith that talks about sur, and that uh, whoever creates a surah, a figure of a human being or animal, will come in the hereafter. I mean, that's what the hadith says, uh, and will come in the hereafter, and Allah will tell them to put a soul in in the figure they drew, and when they fail to do so, Allah will punish them. Now that hadith is weak. In some versions, it's marfu'a. In other words, it's... Uh, anyway, it, it has gaps in transmission. And in other versions, it's simply weak. In, in its chain of transmissions, it has non-thiqat. And even the, the jurists who dealt with the issue of suar um, said that the... The ref the rev the the refrain the the concern about creating human figures or animal figures um was that Islam among those who had converted to Islam they used to be idol worshippers and that early in early Islam there was a worry there was a concern that idol worshipping would return easily, that people would revert back to idol worshipping. Since the, uh, since, uh, uh, the, the writings of people like uh, Muhammad Abdu and Rafa'at Tahtawi and Sheikh Al-Alusi and from Syria and so many others, uh, because we don't have any strong textual sources that tell us drawing is haram, and because we know that, in fact, Muslims do have in their art, they drew figures and they drew faces, and you can look up Islamic art and see it for yourself, uh, 
And because we have, there is no concern that we are going to worry. You're not going to draw someone's face and the next day you'll find people worshiping your drawing. That, that's not a concern and that's not a worry. Reversion to idol worshiping. We have much more to worry about in terms of the way we worship money and the way we worship luxury and the way we... I mean, it's, we're more likely to worship a fancy car like a BMW than to worship one of your drawings. So there, it's not haram. Do your drawing at art school. Excel in your art. Be the best artist you can. Produce amazing art that invites to Allah's way and that it honors Muslims and represents Muslims well, and you will be rewarded by Allah. There is, whoever taught you it's haram, mistaught you. They're, they're, they're close-minded, and they don't know the jurisprudential tradition that they represented to you. Alhamdulillah. Thank you. So with that, then we'll conclude for today. And I just want to remind you, so um, in terms of our next meeting, um, of course, Friday, um, we'll have the next khutbah, um, and then the 20th, which is Saturday, um, June 20th at 4 p.m. inshallah, we will do the first um, new Quran halakha. Um, and then the next um, meeting to finish, inshallah, Surah Al-Fajr will be July um, the 11th, which is the weekend after um, the July 4th weekend. And then I think what we will look to do is probably two weeks after that on July the 25th, do our next Q&A. So um, feel free to send me any questions, and I've already received a lot of questions, so thank you very much, and I apologize to those whose questions we didn't get to today. Um, but inshallah, we will, we will get there. So thank you for joining my, us. My plan, inshallah, in, when we get, come back to Surah Al-Fajr, is to finish Surah Al-Fajr and start Surah Al-Ghashiyah. Okay, inshallah. Very good. Okay. Inshallah. So thank you so much, and inshallah, we'll see you Friday. Okay. Okay, yeah. salam alaikum everyone.